All right, I'm here. Sorry, I'm here. I'm queer. Richard, are you are you there? Yes. Good. Yeah, we uh, we were not graced with your presence last week. Um, everyone was despondent. Oh yeah, sure. <coughs> the many tears were shed. Um, I uh, just so happened to just get off a uh, lively uh, live stream that I took part in with this, uh, I guess he calls himself some sort of socialist uh, live streamer. I think he actually says he's a libertarian socialist, whatever that means exactly, I'm not sure. Um, but he's extreme, and I had been on, he, uh, I had been on his show two years ago, I guess, and uh, you know, he has a very, let's say, a bit of a... Um, Insistence slash even confrontational uh, uh, conversational style, um, but at least as of late, he's been a, a very hardcore proponent of the uh, military victory of Ukraine, and uh, the idea was we would discuss that issue. And um, you know, it was it's funny because. And I was actually sincere when I said this. I started off, I, I, you know, I wrote to him in text, and then I even vocalized it on the very beginning of the stream, that you know, my uh, a primary objective in doing a stream like that, because like his you know, followers have been sort of beckoning me to do it, um, was that you know, I wanted to have as substantive of an exchange as possible. Um, and I actually did want to have a, uh, garner a better understanding of his views. So whatever... Uh, Whatever is informing or motivating his like ardently pro-war stance at the moment, I, I'd like to have a more comprehensive, uh, you know, grasp on it. Um, and uh, you know, we kind of maintained that sort of ethos for I want to say maybe the first half or so. Um, but by the end, he, uh, for one thing. And the guy's name is Vouch, I guess. I, I didn't know, even know his, his first name. Apparently, it's Ian. Vouch? Uh, V-A-U-S-H. I think it is. is it, does he do something with some lawyer? Uh, Fred uh, Barnes? Something Barnes? Do, do they no, no, say? no, no, no. Different guy. You know what I'm talking about? I think I know who you're talking about. Different guy. Okay, Much yeah. different guy. <laughs> um, but anyway, so by, the, by the end, which I just want to say, uh, that uh, I was going to say, rather, by the end, he announced that he hated me, that he doesn't believe, doesn't think I believe a single thing I say, um, that I'm pro-Hitler, and he also asked me um, how much I'm paid by Russia. So, you know, the injunction I tried to uh, introduce from the outset clearly uh, did not succeed, but I mean, maybe I'm biased because I'm talking about myself here and I can't like extricate myself from my own body and brain but I, I'd be amazed if anyone like who's at all fair-minded read uh, watched that um, you know 90 minute or so uh, exchange and concluded that he was the more sensible participant uh, I would I would be amazed um, but I guess you know in terms of a larger in terms of like the larger significance not that it was a very significant thing that I just did the stream but I, I really am increasingly um, sort of identifying a 
the main culprit of why like U.S. policy is going so haywire at the moment and why the international situation is going so haywire. I think one of the main culprits is just a fundamental flaw in like just the human reasoning capacities of so many people who are involved. Um, you know, they cannot separate is from ought, right? They just can't. They don't even know that there's an is-ought distinction. Or in other words, you could describe something that exists without saying it's good that it exists or it's bad that it exists, right? They, can, they cannot sort of like toggle at all between their hyper-moralistic framework for sort of depicting the world and their more, you know, dispassionate or analytical framework for, for, uh, for describing the world. They, they just by their by nature just conflate it so you can't even really engage with them like it, it would i was trying to engage like i don't do the moralism or at least i, I genuinely ge- generally refrain from it um except on like you know, rare exceptions uh, but you know that the you know if you want to put it as an analytical approach that was the approach i was taking as i almost always do on the stream and uh you know it's always it always comes back to like is it good or bad that this happened or are you saying it was good or bad? Um, good guys and bad guys is how he characterized like the moral dimensions of like the Ukraine war, meaning good guys Ukraine, bad guys Russia. Uh, I gradually got him to admit or to like acknowledge that that the U.S. was like a significant player in the situation. Um, anyway, he's not particularly significant. I, I guess uh, you know just in more general terms. This uh, hyper moralism. I, I even talked. I even talked off the record with someone who I wish I could identify right now, but I'm not. But like someone who's actually in a fairly uh, noteworthy role. That's all I'll say. Um, this person conceded to me that they too, and you know who I'm talking about, Richard. I just can't. I can't. You know, but violate the assurance I gave. Um, this person I don't, I don't conceded to me. No, you, I'm saying if I told you the name, you'd know. Oh, okay. Um, this person conceded to me that they, they, they cannot separate their, their like hyper-emotional reaction and moralizing reaction to things right now from any, other, any kind of like dispassionate analytical judgment. They, 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 they acknowledge that they can't do it. And I, I think that that's like polluting so much of like not only the public <sighs> – you know, debate to the extent that there is any debate, but just the general, uh, even just, even like the policy itself. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop. I'm just wondering if like, if you know, if you, if you notice that, that trend or you ha- have any, you know, you can think of any examples of it. Um, yeah, this is the, um, no, this is the norm. I think if you find somebody who could actually analyze the situation and, uh, you know, just sort of say what's going to happen and not react to news stories with outrage and um, emotionalism, um, that's actually quite rare. I mean, when, uh, you know, the Elon Musk thing, I think, is, is funny because when, you know, he just says a few things, maybe you should have. Uh, uh, did you see the story, by the way, where uh, Musk um, uh, he's asking the Pentagon to pick up the tab for uh, Starlink? Uh, no, I missed that. <laughs> uh, so I think it just came out like an hour ago. OK, um, yeah, I was, uh, I was. Yeah, he says it's going to cost about 400, 400 million uh, to run in the next year. So Starlink has been going out and they think it's like it's funny because they think it's like. He's just mad at Zelensky. Uh, maybe he is. I don't know. But like, he sent a letter to the Pentagon asking for well, them Zelensky, to, to cover it. Zelensky basically trolled Musk directly. 
Yeah, yeah, he had him as like a, yeah, Alfred is like a prisoner of war, like a, like a threat. Like, yeah, these Ukrainians, yeah, they don't care. Uh, they, you know, they feel they feel like they're in control. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised with your libertarian socialist friend. I mean, sounds like you know someone who goes by that. I think is a, you know probably tends to be you know goes by that moniker tends to be confused. Uh, I've never met a libertarian. Well, socialist. you know, not, Ch- <laughs> Chomsky at times has used that. I mean, Trump has really. self-described in that way, but like he actually can give a cogent, logically, you know, uh, intelligible explanation for it. And and Chomsky is an incredibly analytical thinker, meaning he is, you know, uh, very extremely reliably able to separate those different modes oh, yeah. okay. of yeah. reasoning. Yeah, um, but like you know. So I don't think it's inherently to do with that, you know, the ideological descriptor necessarily. Okay. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe you're right. Does he call it really call it what's what's uh, okay? Um, yeah, you know, that's it. That's libertarian it. socialist, like it's basically like an, you know, an a fundamentally anti-state socialist of some kind. I couldn't give you a great, you know, uh, rigorous uh, synthesis of the of the supposed ideological tendencies. I just don't care enough. Mm-hmm, um, right. But yeah, it's something along those lines. Yeah. So, I mean, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is really, I mean, how we got here. I mean, you'll see people like off, like, you know, do we have Russia at off ramp or do we do this or do we that? Then they'll be like, they'll just like be like, they'll feel so good about themselves. They'll be like, here's the off ramp, right? Russia, go home. Russia, give up. And it's like, okay. I mean, like, there's a, the there's queening a, um, the, uh, you know, the young, hip, you know, pro war, pro NATO prime minister of Finland because, Somebody asked her, yeah, you know, she walked should off. there be an off-ramp? And she was like, well, that can happen when Russia leaves Ukraine. And then she, like, you know, dropped her mic and strutted away. And everyone was like, <laughs> yeah, slay Yas Queen. Okay, yeah, that's, you know, that's the level yeah, we're at. Yeah, she's, she's fabulous. Um, the, uh, you know, I had a very good conversation, though. With I, I understand the pro-war position better now. I have... Somebody I talked to who's very smart. Uh, did you ever listen? Did you by chance listen to the podcast I did on my Substack with Chris Nicholson? I didn't hear that one. Okay, we'll, we'll check it out because this guy is—he's um, not really a public figure. He's just somebody I do in my personal life, um, and uh, yeah, he's really smart. And we just started talking about these. Uh, we started like doing these podcasts on these different things, but we did one. He's really into the war. He knows like about the weapon systems. He follows the stuff uh, closely. So, you know, I, I encourage people to listen to that. If you want like the smart, you know, the smartest pro war. I mean, I don't know if he'd say he's pro war. You know, he's, he, he thinks, you know, I think he's friendly towards the idea that uh, Ukraine should win and we should be going for a complete Ukrainian victory. Um, but yeah, people should find that uh, podcast if they want, you know, the really good uh, good case for that position. And I think the position is something, you know, it's something along the lines of, look, the U.S., like eventually Russia will not, the costs of Russia uh, to use weapons are just too high. Um, there's still things the U.S. can do escalate uh, short of using nuclear weapons against Russia back or like attacking Russia directly. Um and I think that their position is basically you just keep you just keep bleeding Russia and then eventually it loses and it gives up. It's not um, it's not that crazy. I thought it was crazy at the start, but you know, given that the how the war has gone uh, for Russia since you know since I start since we started uh, since the invasion, um, I don't think it's that crazy. But no, like most people are not even most people are not uh, you know they don't have the the intelligent idea in their head. 
right? The, most most people are thinking they are, you know, most of the, um, oh, wait, Michael's gone. Um, Michael, uh, invite to speak. Okay, I'm Michael, back. The new, were, uh, the app update did not solve the problem. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm back. Thanks. You accidentally went off? How? Well, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I guess I, I pressed, uh, I, I pressed leave stage instead of mute. So the, the, Where? I don't, the, I don't even see leave. The, I don't even see leave. This much hyped, uh, call an app update has not, uh, I guess officially solved the problem. <laughs> I don't even see leave stage. I, I wouldn't even, oh, I guess because I'm not the, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I don't know what I pressed. I, I just know I, I, I seem to inadvertently bring myself, uh, down to the listener, pa- uh, Group. Yeah. Um, so, well, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say. Um, well, number one, I'm curious. Like, what does he? Uh, it seems like he, your friend, who's intelligent, gave you sort of like a military, like a tactical case for why the war is winnable or the, how the war could be won. Yeah. Did he give any kind of like moral case or like a more overarching ideological case for why he thinks that you know that tactical victory is worth pursuing? Uh, I think it's, you know, I, I, we talk about, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. I think the moral case is, is, is simple. I mean, it's that Russia invading Ukraine and then invading countries is wrong. And, you know, even if you don't care about the uh, abstract uh, notion of that, the idea is that you want to make uh, invasion costly. You, you don't want invasions to be successful. You don't want there to be precedent. For, I'm sorry. Uh, that's just such bull- – I, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who must believe some version of that. But it's such bullshit. I mean, really? So your, your, your operating principle is that invading countries is bad. And therefore, like, we, we have to put it all on the line to make sure that this particular invasion doesn't succeed. I mean, really? I, I'm sorry to do, like, this, the most simple, like, the most reflexive whataboutism thing. But, like... Well, I mean, I did. Uh, I did Were people alive during the invasion of Iraq? Uh, yeah, I didn't I mean, ask you know, him if he supported. I didn't ask him if he supported the Iraq War, right? I, I didn't ask him. You know, I didn't ask him that. I mean, it is it just Iraq, but like, I mean, right this very moment, the U.S. has yeah, a yeah. quote unquote occupying force in Syria. Yeah. No, this is all. Yeah, this is all things I think we should not be doing. Uh, I think I think you could say, like, let me put myself in his shoes. Annexation is is different. I mean, I don't know. Like, annexation is a different thing. It, it, it just is a different kind of incentives. I mean, another argument you could make. I don't know if we make this or not. Is that like okay, one country doing it is better than everyone doing it? Just because it's like you know the cops like break down everyone's doors doesn't mean everyone in the world should be breaking down everyone's doors. You know, there is an idea of the U.S. as sort of the. Uh, global superpower, the people of right. order, that means maybe there are double standards. And we just, well, you know, we if they made the that. argument that it's okay if the U.S. invades countries, but we should stop other cu- countries from doing invasions, that would actually be sensible. That would actually be, like, legible to me, you know? Yeah. I think what most people who make this argument are really saying, and I don't know about your friend, maybe he has a more intelligent way of putting it, but most of the time, what they're, they're not saying, they're not making this argument on the basis of, like, aversion to invasions as such. They think that there is a unique evil associated with Putin or the Russian state. Um, you know, it's on the order of Hitler in 1939. Um, and there's also this kind of overarching, like, ideological clash of yeah. civilizations thing where like, Putin is the ultimate emblem of, like, a revanchist fascism. And the U.S. needs to be the arsenal of democracy, just like it was in World War II, and, you know, ensure his defeat. I think that's what they're really 
motivated by, not this like supposed like technical, you know, international relations opposition to like a norm being breached because of an invasion. I think that's right. So I think that's what's motivating most people. And I think that's a less intelligent argument that it's just something about Russia, uh, something about Putin. Yes, I, I think that it, I think win or lose. I don't think Putin is going to do another invasion for the rest of his life. Like, I, I don't think he's Hitler. I think if he wins, he's going to, you know, he was always going to be like satisfied with himself and just like, you know, he'd have enough, you know, uh, he'd have enough, you know, he'd, he'd be satiated, I think, for the rest of his life. I think that would have been plenty to conquer Ukraine. If he loses, I mean, look, he's, he's in a bad shape. So he's not going to do a blitzkrieg through the Baltic states in Poland? Because a lot I of mean, people still believe that he'll do that if the U.S. doesn't ensure. Yeah. Ukraine's it, battlefield victory. Yeah, they, I mean these are these are dumb. No, I mean, like if I don't know if like everyone surrendered to him at once, if like Poland and Baltics all announced that they would not fight, and you know maybe he would he would do it. But hello, uh, Richard, I think you just dropped out. Okay, for a second. I left and then I um I like okay. it dropped me and then I came back. I was worried the room was going to be gone. Okay, well may- maybe maybe there's some glitchy thing happening with the app itself. I don't know. Yeah, the um, app is not. You know, it's not. It's not you know, I was just going to say, uh, going back to the original point I was making about this conflation of different sort of like modes of reasoning and how it is such a total maddening like impediment to having any kind of rational discussion about this subject. Um, you're right, and I'll, of course, anybody who's like aware of this like uh, distinction in reasoning can see it exemplified across. It's like an infinite host of domains, like including just other political issues, you know, with tax policy or whatever. Anything, people conflate these sort of reasoning styles. But, you know, it's actually more important than usual right now to be a bit careful or a bit uh, purposeful in attempt, at least attempting to make that, to, to, to make a distinction between the types of reasoning that are employed because we're talking about, like, a potential nuclear war. I mean, the pre- Joe Biden, the president, is now like repeatedly warning of nuclear Armageddon. He re- he said it last week for the first time Thursday, and then on an interview uh, Monday uh, with Jake Tapper, repeated it. So I mean, I know people don't think that Joe Biden like has his wits about him or he's senile or whatever. Yeah, obviously Joe Biden is undergoing some form of cognitive decline as somebody who's almost 80 years old. Any, anybody who would deny that is stupid. However, I don't think he's senile to the point like that you can't listen to anything he's saying as like reflective of his actual you know, beliefs on stuff. And apparently his belief right now is that the U.S. is on the, we're on the precipice of nuclear Armageddon. So, you know, given that, shouldn't, you'd hope that there, there could be a bit more uh, careful reasoning employed to, like, analyze the nature of the situation to, like, avoid that outcome. But nobody can do it. In fact, you know, they're just getting, it's just becoming more and more impossible. How do you know? Maybe Blinken and Biden and Jake Sullivan and, uh, I don't know, who else? Are they, you know, there's Lord Austin, they're sitting around, and they are thinking about it carefully, right? They wouldn't they tell, they wouldn't tell I'm you saying, everything they're thinking. I'm saying, like, the, you know, People in public, I guess. Uh, yeah, hopefully. No, they are. that's that's too much. Yeah, that's too much to expect. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't. You know, I don't think. You know, I don't think the. Yeah, I mean, the people in public are, are fools, and I mean, to the extent that the Biden administration is being pressured by Twitter and such, I mean, that's uh, that's dangerous. Um, but you know, they haven't done like you know, the Biden administration hasn't done everything like that these people on Twitter want, right? There's a lot that they haven't done. They haven't provided like fighter jets and tanks. 
um, you know, they haven't done, they haven't done a lot. So they've done tank transfers. They've facilitated the transfer of Soviet era tanks from like Romania. And yeah, and, and you know, they're not as good as like the American tanks that they could give them. Uh, and you know, they're, uh, you know, they're not setting up a no fly zone or that was like a discussion for a while. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I think a defender of the administration would say they are behaving reasonably. Or reasonably. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they have this all figured out. I agree. It's like, it's the pinnacle of reasonable policymaking when the policy eventuates in Cuban Missile Crisis 2.0. Like that, to me, is like the classic vindication of the wisdom of a policy. Well, are we in Cuban? Are we in Cuban missile? We're 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 in. Well, according to I Biden, think, yeah, I think yeah. Getting uh, the way we, um, I think the you know I think this war breaking out is clearly a failure. Um, it's clearly you know a policy failure of the U.S. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. U.S. Po- uh, you can't you can't say this, but U.S. policy has been a failure. On its own stated terms, I mean, when it started, Biden well, said, okay, the point, the point of all this aid, quote-unquote aid, which is like a misnomer into itself, it's to contain Putin, right? It's to, de- it's to be a deterrent. Where's the deterrence? Was, was Putin deterred when he responded to the Crimea Bridge attack on Monday by, by doing the most intense uh, airstrikes since, since the invasion? Well, I mean, though they might say Putin hasn't, you know, there's a lot he could do. Like, he hasn't flattened... Uh, central Kiev. People have talked about why uh, they did. Uh, they haven't. Um, you know, they haven't used nukes. Obviously, um, anything know. short of anything short of nukes is a big success. Yeah, they haven't hit. You know, I don't know. They haven't hit like uh, you know the transfer from. Uh, you know, they haven't hit like the you know Poland or any of these way stations where the weapons are coming. They haven't. Yeah, I know. It's. I think they're pretty much throwing. Yeah, they're pretty much throwing everything that they have now. Besides, you know, nukes and. Uh, chemical weapons and you know, stuff, stuff like that. Um, and also, yeah, if but, the but, Biden administration but, is doing just purely dispassionate reasoning and they're able to totally bifurcate out their moral, uh, you know, sensibility on this, then their their analytical reasoning is like catastrophically flawed. Yeah. Right? So, like here's just one example, uh, right? Yeah, last week, last week Zelensky puts out this formal presidential decree, right? Basically announcing that it's, a, it's official policy of the of the Ukraine government that no negotiations are possible so long as Putin is in power. W- what does that mean? Well, the only circumstance in which now negotiations could ever be possible to bring about some sort of resolution to the war is if there's regime change in Russia. And what does Biden say? Well, he just re- he, he's repeated the same cliche as he has throughout the entire war, but he just did it again with Jake Tapper where he warned of nuclear Armageddon. He, he does this thing that, you know, he d- does this mantra that Blinken taught him. Nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, meaning that they're, they're trying to, they're saying every policy decision should be, should be understood to be 100% delegated to Ukraine. And so that's the policy decision now, regime change in Russia. I mean, do they have enough analytical reasoning abilities to understand that's what they're saying? I mean, I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, it's a two-sided thing at the same time because when I look at um, – when I look at Russia, you know, I don't see them uh, – you know, I don't see them like saying, you know, let's – you know, they, 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 they annex this land that they don't control like in a lot of places. They said, you know, let's uh, have – I think they were this – I said I think they might have said at some point they wanted negotiations like on that basis, which is just, you know, like not serious, you know, land that they don't even control – um, right. You know, you're right that there should be, you know, there, there should be some negotiations here. 
um, and there should have been for the. Well, start. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying like the the Biden administration's stated policy precludes yeah. it. Yeah, but that's that's the stated policy. Like that's the stated policy. It doesn't mean necessarily that that's always going to be. No, but uh, it's significant if the stated policy precludes it, and then you know Biden himself then reiterates the policy. Yeah, yeah, it is. So yeah, I was so I was going to def- I was going to try to defend the administration um, in a certain way. So yes, it was a failure uh, to. Um, it was a failure to get into this to get into this war to come to this point, right? That has to be that can't be um, seen as anything but uh, it can't be succeed, that can't be seen as a success of the deterrence policy. But they have stopped Russia from you know grab you know they haven't stopped Russia from grabbing more land than more people thought it you know would be able to grab. Russia at the outset of the war you know claimed all of Donetsk and Luhansk and you know it's it's one of the things. Kiev, and it, 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 you know, now it even claims uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia, and it's losing, it's even losing territory in Kherson. So, like, militarily, right, um, you could say once the war started, they, they, you know, they prevented a nuclear escalation so far, you know, we'll see what gets there, and they prevented, you know, um, and they've, um, and they've, you know, prevented Russia from achieving its war at war aims. Um, and then maybe they would say... But hold yeah, on, so the, ev- the evidence of the... You're not there, Mike. I don't hear you, Michael. Michael, can you hear me? Annexation of the four provinces. That's the deterrence. Wait, what? I, you you cut out. What did you say? Oh, um, so the the evidence that the deterrence supposedly has succeeded is that Russia expanded its war aims beyond what they were in February. This is what Mearsheimer wrote in his foreign affairs essay in uh, July or August, where he's saying that, you know, Putin has now broadened the objectives of the special military operation to include well, uh, territorial conquest. So ha- have the, has, is that deterrence succeeding? Well, we had a, uh, well, we, we've had this discussion before. I, I, I don't think that that was all that uh, Russia's goals were. I mean, remember we had this conversation with back and forth. I think they were trying to take uh, Kiev. I think they were trying to do regime change. Um, and they don't seem to have much hope of doing that, at least in the immediate future anymore. I mean, uh, Mersheimer says, oh, it's just about these two provinces, which I, I don't think I think that's... Well, no, that's not what he says. He's just saying that the, the objectives of Russia have gotten more and more maximalist as the war has dragged on, and I think there's a lot of evidence corroborating <laughs> that interpretation. Uh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think... I mean, I, I think that it's probably equally maximalist. I think they were trying to take uh, Kiev at the beginning, um, they're not trying to do that now, you know. I, I think right. I think right now, if you know, they haven't tried this, but if the you know, if the U.S. and Ukraine said you could have those four regions, um, I think they would take that, and that's not. Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, I'm honestly, I'm not. I'm really. I'm. I know. I, I don't want to rehash the whole, you know, nah. invasion era argument, but I'm. I'm still not convinced of it. In part, in, in part, but based on something that happened this week, you know, in the retaliatory sort of nationwide strikes that Putin authorized after the Crimea bombing, one reason why they were so uh, shocking, what the bombings were so shocking was because they bom- the, the strikes uh, were launched at like center city Kiev, um, you know, so like right near like the seat of government, you know, where Zelensky's, you know, presidential office is. And that, that, those areas had never been bombed in the initial phase of the war. Um, so, but they're being bombed now, you know? So yeah. I don't know, it's... 
Well, yeah, I mean, they wanted to, they wanted to, they wanted to, I mean, they wanted to take, they wanted to take the, the capital. So, yeah, I mean, they were, they were, you know, and like the incompetence of it all, it seems like they were expected to be grieving as liberators and that, you know, that they were, they thought that they would just sort of, you know, be able to set up their own, their own government. I think that's, I think that's what the expectation uh, was. But, you know, we, we don't know, we don't know the full, I mean, we don't know, like, you know, there's people who believe, like Anatoly Carlin believes this is a pro-Russian, uh, pro-Russian nationalist um, who's uh who believes that Putin just wanted to annex literally, you know, all of Ukraine. Um, and that's, he, he thought it was completely maximalist. And like, maybe if you Putin now just wants to uh, annex for... Scott Ritter says that too. Uh, that Putin at the beginning wanted to annex all of Ukraine? Well, I mean, at, least, uh, at least as of now, Scott Ritter, I, I watched an interview with him with um, Andrew Napolitano <laughs> a couple days ago. He says that the, the, the goal now of Russia is to not stop until... Russian troops are facing down NATO troops on the border with Poland. So, you know, going as far west as the Polish border with, a, okay. you know, a, a yeah. physical occupation presence. I don't know if that's true or not. I just know that's what Ritter said. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, yeah, we don't, I mean, we don't know what Russia, we don't know, you know precisely what Russia's goals were at the start of this. And it's hard to say whether their goals have expanded uh, uh, or contracted, right? So, yeah, we, we, I guess we can't yeah. say for certain At least... Uh, I, I wish people at least sort of acknowledge that it's an open question, right? I mean, like we don't have like conclusive evidence one way or another. What did you make of um, what did you like when you heard about the Crimea bomb? Uh, I mean, I'm calling it a terror bombing because it meets it fits all the classic criteria of like what a terror bombing supposedly was before 2022. Um, but anyway, like what did what, what was you what was your reaction? Like, how did you interpret the significance of it when you heard about it? You know, I'm very interested in this infrastructure stuff. Like, I was, I would look at it like what you actually can do and like how quickly these things can get repaired and how much of a big deal it makes it. So, you know, I was always wondering like why Ukraine, why Russia didn't just knock out Ukraine's, uh, uh, you know, their power, their electricity. And it looks like they did to a certain extent, but like apparently this stuff is not that easy to just knock off permanently. You can knock it off. Um, and then, you know, they, Ukraine apparently has rolling blackouts now. Um, but then, you know, they get it back up, they build redundancies, I, you know, I don't know if they have the firepower to just destroy it, you know, permanently, because they can always sort of put it back together. So the bridge is sort of, the bridge is sort of um, like that, it's going to be, it's a temporary, you know, it's a temporary uh, setback at, at most. It was like, you know, once, you, you know, those videos are incredible, you see it was like, you know, there's one, it's like half the highway than one of the rails, and, you know, that's going to be... Um, you know that's going to be that's going to be fixed. That's not anything that's going to be uh, unfixable. And you still have you still have half the roads. So you can like you know you could repurpose that to like you know you just this traffic is going to move much slower. From what I hear, the rail is used more for military transportation than the. Uh, uh, but but it's, it's you know it's fascinating. I mean it's fascinating the, the sort of mechanics of how this happened. I mean the um, you know the uh, the. Um, uh, the, you know, like, how did they, you know, like, it's, it's, the, we have no idea who this guy was, who, who did this. Um, you know, we have no idea how they got it to de- detonate, like, when it was over. Like, it must have been some kind of thing where, uh, you know, like, he, they might have just killed this innocent, you know, truck driver. Like, it was Ukrainian. Well, Rita. the FSB found, as of yesterday, I think, or the day before, and I'm, I'm not taking at face value what the FSB said, although it should be noted that when the FSB initially blamed, you know, like Ukraine uh, intelligence services or whatever, like some Ukraine military faction for carrying out the attack, um, that was immediately corroborated by, you know, like the New York Times quoting Ukraine government officials in the Washington Post 
corroborated it and so on. So yeah. well, you pretty well corroborated at this point. But anyway, what the FSB says is that uh, an a, enormous amount of explosives were loaded onto this truck unbeknownst to the driver. Yeah. And, and so question. the driver was a it was the driver wasn't a suicide bomber he was just a casualty of the attack. Yeah, and I but I wonder how how they got it to um, detonate at the right time. I mean, I don't know how that how that that works. I mean, I don't know. They put a GPS system. They know where he, they track him, and then they they blow it up. This is pretty pretty ruthless stuff. I mean, the, if Ukraine is doing this, say the fact that it could go away with it. They, uh, there's a there's a there's an app for the PlayStation Five that you can use to do it. Yeah, it's not. I guess it's not hard to track. <laughs> yeah, track somebody. Just yeah. Well, you know, when I, I, I mean, I've obviously my character, my description of the attack is a what seems to me a quintessential terror bombing attack. Is people will scream, "Well, no, the the bridge is a legitimate military target. It, it was a critical artery for the transport of military logistics." Okay, yeah, the bridge was is used for the transport of military logistics. That doesn't at all negate that the bombing took place on the civilian motorway. Civil, uh, civilian vehicles were immediately incinerated by the bombing. Um, in that video, you can see like a car coming in the opposite direction uh, gets caught in the explosion. Apparently, four people were killed in that one car alone. Um, and, uh, you know, where's the evidence that it in any way meaningfully hampered Russian military logistics, because Leonid Bershitsky, who, uh, who's this, um, he's originally from Russia, he's like a Bloomberg columnist, journalist, editor type, and he's like vehemently anti-Russia now. He, I mean, he like almost went crazy over Putin uh, because of the invasion, uh, but he's like, I still could be pretty rational. He, he uh, you know, within hours of the attack showed, based on just like the data of the rail activity, uh, th- the rail, trans, uh, rail transit resumed within hours. And that's the primary mode of uh, the logist- military logistics uh, transport on this bridge, right? Um, so, I mean, what was, the, what was the attack on? I mean, was it really an attack on military logistics? I don't know. I think we should just take into account how Ukraine government officials themselves, themselves have uh, – presented like the justification for the attack. You had like the Minister of Defense immediately put out uh, a tweet saying that it was it was a happy birthday message to Putin. Um, the minute like another Ministry of Defense account said, you know, this is a, a great yeah, Michael, a great symbolic is, achievement yeah. for that's, Ukraine. That's war, Michael. That's, yeah. I, well, yeah, okay, but that's a terror it's a terror bombing. Yes, I, 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 that's what a terror bombing agree, is when I you agree. when you blow up civilians yeah. to send some sort of political or ideological message. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I'm not I'm not surprised. I mean, are you surprised? I'm not I'm not surprised that this this kind of stuff, you know, they do this kind of stuff. I'm not surprised. I just think it's notable that like everybody's uh, bending over backwards to say how wonderful it is that the US taxpayers to the tune of like 70 billion dollars are basically enabling terror bombings i mean that's sort of a notable thing right uh yeah i mean i'm not i mean there have been uh you know attacks on uh uh civilian areas in the Donbass too so yeah this none, none of this is none of this is that new well this is the first like isis style or al-qaeda style terror bombing that i'm aware of uh at least well, over the course of the war yeah i mean they hit they hit i think they hit like they try i think they hit an oil uh uh, facility maybe in Bulgrad, the uh, attack. Well, I mean the the the, the thing. Uh, well, yeah. Well, again, and that's, that's amazing. That's another amazing thing, right? 
the I'm sure you saw that in the New York Times last last week, mm-hmm. the U.S. Right. Intel- intelligence services accused Ukraine of doing it publicly. Yeah, um, and Ukraine officials, including in Zelensky's like office, denied it vehemently at the time on the ground that if U- Ukraine were to have carried out the, that assassination bombing in August. Uh, it would make Ukraine a terrorist state, and Ukraine's not a terrorist state, therefore it didn't do the attack. Now the U.S. intelligence services say that Ukraine did the attack. Is that, does that mean Ukraine's a terrorist state per their own definition, and then the U.S. is like sending $70 billion and operationally coordinating the entire war effort of a terrorist state? I don't know. You can infer things, but nobody really yeah. is, uh, you know, wants to, to do the reasoning required to come to those conclusions. Yeah, lying and hypocrisy in war. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, again, not not very surprising. Yeah. All right. Why don't we go to uh, callers? Uh, you got to you got to bring the callers up, Richard, because I uh, okay. I ejected, I ejected myself. Uh, invite to speak or make next caller. It's make, make next, next caller. caller. Make next caller. Okay, Chris B. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, guys? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, cool. Um, yeah, Mike. Um, I did listen to. I did not listen to your um, thing with the uh, vote. You missed uh, out. I can't stand that guy. So sorry. About well, that. Um, I don't blame anyone for not listening because. Yeah. yeah. It's. Well, I mean, tedious is not even going yeah. anywhere. Honest, honestly, I've given up any hope on um, you know trying to make a, a rational rational argument or rational discussion with people that are um already convinced it, it's they're they're beyond that it's not it's just i don't think it's going to work um and uh to your point richard i haven't um i haven't li- i haven't listened to your podcast you did with your friend but um yeah i i'm convinced that pretty much everybody at this point who is in favor currently in favor of u.s policy they think it's working there isn't, I don't think there's anybody right now who is still in favor of the policy who is kind of like wondering, is this going to work or not? Everyone's very confident. Uh, I'm not confident about it. Well, then they're doubling down. <laughs> not only are they confident, they want to like intensify the policy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, and they, they, they think they've got it. They think that, um, you know, the Russian military is going to collapse any minute. And that's just, that's just not logical. I don't, I don't see that at all. Um, and uh, there, there's so I've been thinking about what it's going to take to, uh, to interrupt. Really I, I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible, incorrigible interrupter, but sometimes I just have like factoids that are relevant. I mean, I saw t- just today yeah, that apparently Russia, the Russian military uh, took a couple of new uh, like villages in, in, in uh, Donetsk province or something. So like they're even like expanding territorially to some extent anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, the R- Russia's been okay. So both sides have been building up um, ever since the ever since the first phase of the war ended, when Russia pulled out of Kiev and the north. Both sides have been building up for a, another big offensive, and Ukraine's already blown their load. Um, Russia hasn't even really launched their next offensive yet. So it, it's th- this thing is not over. It's not going to be over anytime soon. Um, the I've been thinking about what it's going to take to really change U.S. policy. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to require, but I think we all know what, when it starts to happen. I think we all know exactly what it's going to look like. It looks it's going to look like every other U.S. war, um, and and you're going to start to see a shift in um, public consciousness about it. Um, mm-hmm. 
the like in Vietnam when it started off, the narrative was, well, we're fighting. Con it's a global battle between uh, democracy and communism. <clears throat> we had to, we had to um, intensify and uh, and uh, accelerate because of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And then later it changes and actually, uh, no, the war is about uh, national determination of Vietnam and it's a civil war and we're not going to resolve it. And similar thing happened in Iraq, started with, you know, freedom versus um, despotism, WMD. And then it was um, a Sunni versus Shia civil war that we yeah. could not resolve military. The same thing is going to happen in Ukraine, and it's going to be people. Or in Iraq, it eventually became, you know, yeah, maybe our initial like highfalutin ideological objectives can't be uh, ever achieved, but we can't pull out because we have to preserve our credibility. Hey, Michael, I um, I have uh, family stuff. Uh, give me fifteen minutes. Can you hold the fort? I'll be back. Oh yeah, 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 no problem. Richard has to attend to a screaming child, apparently. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Continue, Chris. Um, but that. That's what it's going to look like um, eventually. And it, it's um, to the question about, um, you know. Oh, sorry. Let me before, before you before you make another point. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, one thing that could actually conceivably change U.S. policy is if Congress stopped funding the policy. Now, yeah, I don't see that as a viable eventuality anytime soon, even if like the Republicans do win in, uh, you know, when, say, like a, a slim majority in the House of Representatives, uh, first of all, they won't, the new Congress won't even come in to office until January. Uh, but second of all, like, let's say the Republicans have a five-seat majority. Let's say there are even a couple more Republicans uh, who are elected who are, you know, at least claim to be uh, anti-interventionists, or at least they're critical of policy in Ukraine, uh -huh. right? You're still not going to have, you're still going to have a more than comfortable majority for passing pretty much any appropriations uh, bill that uh, Biden wants, and even in the even in the off chance that Congress did decline to, uh, you know, pass an appropriations bill, which it's almost impossible to fathom, but let's say they did, even then Biden already has just an incredible amount of unilateral presidential authorities that could probably be sure. sufficient for a, for quite a while. So yeah, I mean it's uh, you know. Hopeless. And in terms of like you giving up a rational discussion, you know, I, obviously I, 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 I know where you're coming from. I guess just for me, though, on, on principle, I can't give up on it. And actually, I do have some evidence yeah, that yeah. It's, it's worth not giving up on because I, I, I get a lot of feedback. You know, much of it is negative that people see, especially because I'm not, I've been told that I'm the number one target of the uh, pro-Ukraine online troll army um, based on uh, reports from inside their discord. Um, but... Um, I also get a lot of positive feedback, including from people who tell me that, you know, I actually have, you know, caused them to think about things differently. And in other words, like you're the persuasive effect I'm, is actually is actually working. Yeah. No, no, no. I know you're not. I'm just. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I am not quite as pessimistic as you are on the policy change. I, I, I guess there's two points to make. First of all, I um, with regards to funding, um, that's true. It looks like it's going to be pretty hard to shut that down. But first of all, we don't really know how much funding is actually required right now to keep the Kiev, keep the Kiev government afloat. Because, um, yeah, we're sending them a lot of weapons. We're also just sending them tons of cash, which they payroll. need because otherwise they would be insolvent. Yeah, we're just like, yeah, just like and, payroll and stuff. They're just like to fund the basic 
mechanisms yeah. of the state. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, remember, remember when everyone claimed they were against nation building? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's not clear to me how much of a, um, a hiccup, you know, like a kink in the hose would actually trigger a collapse of, of the Kiev government. I mean, it, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, and the second point is, I think it's going to take um, changing um, political dynamics in Europe first. Um, we're starting to see some of that, a lot of protests. Um, I just, just from personal experience, um, people I've talked to are starting to, um, signal a, a kind of change in perspective they're, What they're doing is they're actually paying attention now. Um, for a long time, I. Th oh, sorry. I kicked off Chris, Michael. I thought that I would, um, I thought that I could just make the next guy, the next caller to help you along. Um, oh, okay. Sorry, Chris. But, I uh, but anyway, inadvertent... so maybe, maybe it's good to take Iggy anyway. I'll be back in a minute. So yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry about that, Chris. Did not mean to cut you off. Yeah, I mean, just, just on what he was saying, um, you know, I think there's probably something to it, actually, that it would, uh, whatever political change could precipitate some sort of policy shift, uh, it might be most likely to start in Europe. Um, I, I mean, I don't see a whole lot of evidence about that, of that happening, really. I mean, you know, for example, the new Italian prime minister who people were screaming was the new incar uh, incarnation of Mussolini. I mean, she's hardcore pro-NATO as well, pro-Ukraine, you know, military, quote-unquote, aid and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you'll probably see some protests here and there. Um, I don't know. Uh, whether that could reach a critical mass, I, I tend to doubt, although I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out, but, you know. Who knows? I, I just think, you know, Biden, Biden has staked his like presidency and his career, you know, on the success of the of this of the U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. I mean, even in even when uh, even in just kind of conventional, generic sort of Washington Post summaries of Biden's priorities. I mean, this is his priority. This is his like legacy. So, I mean, is he just going to, you know, give up? I mean, I, I, I think. It's hard to imagine that, but, you know, I'm open to alternate explanations. Um, all right, let's go to Iggy. Hey, Michael. Um, I was thinking that, um, you know, the, the bridge attack is essentially an escalatory point. So it hasn't really um, changed anything because the bridge section is being replaced. The, the railway line looks like it's back open. So, you know, that supply, that route is open. But well, the railway was open given, within hours. It wasn't just, you know. Exactly, yeah, 14 hours or something was a report, wasn't it? And it's given Russia the escalatory justification, but it's also Russia's general dipl dipl diplomatic language is always far more professional than the West. So what? So I kind of see that Russia now has a pseudo-legitimacy to begin a shock and awe-style campaign, which is what we're right. seeing now. Quote-unquote counter-terrorism like yeah, operation, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and and literally, it's all targets on the table now, isn't it? It's it's now cutting off power. It's now con conducting conventional war on the nation, right? But also, Russia Russia has the linguistic ability to name to name what it wants. So does it does it overtly blame um, the U.S. for the gas uh, the the Nord Stream attack? Does it overtly blame British special forces for the bridge attack? You know, any of these things is radical escalation justification because US right. um, the New York Times admitted in June 
that there were special forces operatives. US special forces were definitely on the ground. That's in June, available in the web archive. And this month, uh, there is now another admission in either the Wall Street Journal, maybe, or something, that, that, um, that security um, intel sources inside the US have confirmed to the paper that the, the ramp up of US special forces personnel is increasing. So, you know, well, this I'm, is, I'm sorry, where, where is that, Iggy? What's the citation for that exactly? I, I think, I I think it might be Wall Street Journal. I can dig it out whilst you're on the call. I'll find it. Um, okay. And, Wall Street so Journal, Special Forces. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I'll, I'll, but the, I can definitely get it for you before, the call, the, before okay. we're, the, your show is over. Thank you. So Thank you. Russia now has this kind of um, – it can choose what it wants to say in order to justify radical escalation. But what does escalation do? It gives the U.S. even more pretext to continue washing more and more and more money through the country, right? And and so this is suits both sides almost, oh. if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, I mean, that, I think that gets to why you see such uh, aggressive denial that the the bridge bombing could be, you know, uh, justifiably labeled as a terror bombing. Because if it was a terror bombing, you know, then that would afford Russia certain, you know, retaliatory justifications right um now i think just analytically you know empirically it if that's not a terror bombing i'm not sure what what you know it, it seems to just be obviously have all the hallmarks of a terror bombing right but of course you have to do not it, you can't nobody's going to admit that because then that means russia could conceivably be justified in carrying out you know certain counterterrorism operations but also iggy uh, even before the crime crime attack right Russia had already kind of been gradually building this case. Lavrov at the UN like two weeks ago, and I think I mentioned this on the call, you know, he was, he was putting forth arguments on the grounds of international law that de uh, designate, a he was like officially asserting that based on Russia's understanding of international law, uh, the United States in particular was hereby a, uh, a co-belligerent, you know, or like a party to the war, and therefore, you know, under that rubric, you know, could be justifiably attacked. Um, so yeah, they, they've been building this case, and the the Crimea Bridge thing w was you know seems to have accelerated the construction of the case that they they appear to be building. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical that they you know they they need much of a case. Yeah, I mean I just I, I don't know what Russian capabilities uh, are at this point. I mean they could hit civilian infrastructure. I mean a lot of it gets. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of it gets um, uh, uh, a lot of it gets rebuilt pretty quickly. I mean, the weapons are still coming in. The Ukrainian manpower um, is still there. The support from the West um, is still there. Um, so I, I don't know. Like, I don't think Russia needs like a justification to hit uh, uh, Ukrainian, uh, you know, civilian areas or civilian infrastructure. I mean, I think that's what, what why are they happened. building this case. I mean, just people say things. I mean, you think you think that if it, you think that uh, I mean, they were moving in this. Sergey Lavrov just like says stuff without any. Yeah, purpose. I mean, like, but they're going to well, What else are they going to say? No, we we uh, we just bomb civilians because you know we like to, and you know we we were trying to install. You know, they 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 justify things right in a sort of common sense way. Um, and you know, there was it was after it came after the uh, offensive in Kharkiv. I mean, there was there was a lot of infrastructure being hit uh, uh, after that uh, too. So, I don't know. Um, well, yeah. I, 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 I'm not sure I would be so dismissive of it because, like, they, they literally, Putin li literally directly and personally cited the 
commission of what he said was a terror attack on the Crimea Bridge as the justification for then them him then the next day him launching that you know Ukraine wide oh, series of missile strikes. I, I think there's a connection. You're right. I think it politically made it, you know made, made made that he had to do something. So yeah, I think the connection is there. I think the yeah, I don't think it's random. No, we agree. Yeah. Okay, uh, Heidi. Hi. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I'm going to go in a little bit different direction uh, from the other callers because this is something that's been driving me nuts ever since the beginning of the, the whole thing. What is the history? Because from what I understand, basically Ukraine, you know, places like uh, Uzbekistan, uh, Georgia, all these places were were part of the Russian Empire until the USSR formed in the 19-teens or 20s or whatever. Um, Before that, there were vassal states to whoever was the strongest, you know, Poland being uh, one of them with Ukraine, uh, you know, where there there were arguments over who gets to claim uh, their production capacity or whatever. Um, And the reason I ask that is because I'm not a, a... typically type of person that roots for the big guy, you know, like, like most people, I I root for the underdog. Uh, But in this case, I do not see Ukraine as being a quote unquote underdog, um, especially because of their uh, fascist tendencies and uh, uh, because of the backing by us. But I also want to uh, respect people enough to, consider that they have agency, that uh, not everything is, is dictated by the U.S. in the world. You know, fuck us. We're, we're the most horrible leaders, if you want to call us that, the most horrible world police, if you want to call us that. Um, but yeah, basically, I want to know what you guys know. Uh, please tell me, because I'm so fuzzy on the details. I got in an argument with my father about the people of Ukraine, uh, especially the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine, my father tried to tell me that they were put there by Stalin, you know, and then I have a, a friend from Russia tell me that, no, Stalin was Georgian, and he doesn't care about Russia. You know, he's not trying to implant people from Russia. And so I'm so confused. Yeah, Please yeah. tell me. Um, well... First of all, the question of like who's the underdog, I think you make a good point. And the point I would make on that score wouldn't be to like say who one ought to have a rooting interest in. Like that's not – you should root for the underdog or something. Um, But it is sort of ironic that the warring party that's limitlessly subsidized and backed and whose military operations are operationally coordinated uh, with – and who, oh, by the way, also has boots on the ground, special forces inside the the uh, country. That that country is, uh, which is ba- you know, back to the hilt by the number one military superpower in the world. That's the underdog. I mean, I think that's sort of a bit of a weird case to make when you think about it. But you know, it's true. Obviously, that it's, if you just think of it in terms of like. Ukraine's military capability versus Russia, and yeah, that it would be the underdog, but that's not the nature of the conflict, right? So given the actually existing nature of the conflict, um, you know, not clear that the kind of simple, simplistic underdog, uh, uh, you know, ascription would necessarily be, 
be warranted. In terms of like the the confusion of the history, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to claim like uh, that. I'm uh, I could give you chapter and verse about Ukraine in like the 16th century or something. I do know one thing that I found interesting. This, I, 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 and I got a sense of this when I was in Poland when the war first started. Um, you know, but a big reason why there was such a willingness, maybe the central reason why there was such a willingness on the part of Poland specifically to except so many displaced Ukrainians who flooded the country. I think Poland's overall population uh, increased by like, it was like increased by like 6% in three weeks or something insane. Um, it was because, you know, earlier iterations of the Polish state literally included what is now in present day, you know, Western Ukraine, you know, like around Lviv and such. That was, Pol- that was Poland. So people have like direct familial ties and that, that, they, that don't really recognize the contemporary nation state borders, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, and there's just a ton of that throughout Europe uh, in all these kind of convoluted ways that a lot of people don't really have a great understanding of. So, yeah. Is there not? I, mean, I, I don't know if that's like the best, you know, that's the best lens through which to judge these things. I mean, it's, you know, it's about forming a stable peace. It's about saving lives. It's about morality. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a one, one way you can look at it, which you create as the underdog. There's a to sort of look at it when it's Russia against, you know, the entire Western world, uh, you can look at the Russia, Russia as not good enough. So, yeah, these things uh, don't have a correct answer. Uh, Mr. Mr. Yeah. Hey, guys, how's it going? Hey, hey. Hey, uh, uh, Michael, I had a kind of a question for you. I, 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 it's always easier to kind of, you know, Monday mortar, uh, couch quarterback, the kind of thing here. But uh, one thing that kind of just irked the shit out of me with Vosh, man, is is uh, uh, she called him out think- on that fucking shit binary question shit? Because basically, what he kept asking you was, "Did you stop hitting your wife? Yes or no?" I know, I know. Did you? Did you actually watch the whole thing, Michael? Michael, did you stop hitting your wife? Yeah. This is a yes or no question. And it's I, like, I, I, th- I think he said my name like ninety times. <laughs> did you actually listen to the whole thing? I, I listened to most of it. I was working, yeah. so I kind of. Yeah. Not paying attention to the full time, but I listened to, to most of it. And and the thing that just drove me nuts too about him repeating your your name like that, it was it's like a it's like a parent talking to a child. It, 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 yeah, you know, yeah. it just showed it just showed massive disrespect. It made him look like a fucking clown. It made you like not want to listen to whatever point he was about to make. Right. After that. Whether the point was good or not, I just my brain was like tuning out like of what he was saying. So I'm like, dude, this guy is so fucking patronizing. Well, yeah, I mean I I, I, I my my thinking was I just and if you watch from the beginning, you see, you, might, you saw the disclaimer that I made, and I even put this to him in writing because it's actually true. It's actually a sincere, you know, statement on my part, which is that my intent was to be as tethered to the, the substance as possible. Meaning, I wasn't wasn't going to do personal attacks and so forth. Um, I was going to strive not to. So if you know, if he goes down that road and like he does the interruptions and. Uh, and so and so on. Okay, let that just speak for itself. Uh, I'm not going to do a thing where I feel like I need to call him out. I'd rather just have his like, you know, any like rational, sane viewer of the of the video, like, you know, draw their own conclusion. Yeah, no, it definitely. Yeah, that's that's probably the better thing to take the high road. But it just to me, it just like it seemed like he was, you know, hell bent on being like, no, you're only going to answer my questions in the way that I want them to answer, you'd answer them. So therefore I can say, gaha, see, we agree or haha, see, I told you I was right. It, ha- it didn't 
it didn't seem like it was furthering the uh, the debate at all. It was just kind of like, a, a, let me see if I can own this kind of person. It was just a, you know, very yeah. Well, and I knew he was going to do that because I, I had, you know, debate lord kind of tactic. And I knew he was going to do that because that's exactly what he did on the debate that he invited me to do, uh, or conversation or whatever, stream two years ago. You know, this uh, constant uh, resort to like these like binary yes or no mor- uh, moral ultimatum questions. Um, so I know he was going to do that. I just uh, sort of reasoned that it was worth doing anyway because even given his you know, tactic in that respect, there was going to be enough of an opportunity anyway for me to kind of like you know, highlight certain things worth highlighting or just like there, there was enough reason to believe that I could make something productive of it that I was willing to like, you know, accept the tedious, you know, hectoring and stuff. Um, but anyway... Yeah, and then there was two, two or three times that he pointed, uh, or he said, he said that he was an anti-imperialist, and I was kind of bummed he didn't zap him on that one, because like, that, that like, actually made me laugh out loud. I was well, like, I, I did, I mean, I zapped him in a more sort of, you know, I, I, tried, I, 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 I tried to opt for the more reserved reaction, because a lot, again, a lot of it just speaks for itself. He said he supported the assassination terror bombing, because he's an anti-imperialist. So he's, because he's an anti-imperialist, that's why he supported the assassination terror bombing. That's what he said. So, you know, again, let the guy speak for himself. Yeah, and he, he also falsely stated um, that uh, the reason why he thought the assassination terror bombing in August was, quote, dope, um, was because uh, Dugina, you know, the daughter of Dugan, was a uh, Russian state official who's influence on the Russian state was comparable to a uh, Himmler in Nazi Germany. Um, and, you know, that just happens not to be at all actually true. So, you know, people can hopefully just see that and, you know, make a judgment. Do you think the guy was a suicide bomber or do you think they murdered him? On the truck, uh, the, the uh, bridge attack? Yeah, I don't know. I think the, uh, what, from what I've seen, and this is just, uh, you know, tentative, uh, from what I've seen, the, uh, you know, the explanation that it was some sort of sabotage attack wherein the actual truck driver himself did not know uh, that his truck was loaded with explosives, that seems to be, to me, the most uh, plausible, uh, expo- uh, you know, explanation so far. But, you know, I, uh, I reserve the right to be contradicted by new evidence. Either way, it's either way, it's it's, it's horrible because either you're cheering the, all those people that cheered it on, like uh, Vindemann, you know, saying, "Oh, I've been telling yeah. this day." Like he's either cheering on a suicide bomber or he's cheering on people murdered by the state. So to me, I, I think yeah. that's awful. And I think whatever, it's- yeah, because whatever the exact execution of the bombing, right? We know that four civilians were incinerated. So I mean, that's what they're. That's what Vindman, you know, that who then you know accuses me of being a Russian agent on Twitter. Um, uh, uh, Vinman's a whole nother subject. Uh, God, um, but you know he has this like uh, orgasmic reaction to the Crimea bombing. He'd been dreaming of it for so long, and it's just like and he posts this picture of like the bridge exploding. I mean, the, the, the the photo he literally posted was like the exact moment of incineration death of at least four civilians, and like nobody thinks this is all, all peculiar. I mean, it's, it's it is it is grotesque. I mean, this is this is what you see on Twitter. You know, I was uh, I was pretty shocked by it. You know, at the start of the war, but you know, now it's just it's just sort of baked in. I, you know, I think though, I think if there was nukes going off in, in Russia, I think I think we'd have to just you know bear Twitter. 
just well, I mean, it's not just Twitter, though. I mean, Vin, Vin, Vin yeah, Vin's like, like, yeah, oh, no, he, did, he, he said, I mean, the reason why he called me a Russian agent was because I, I watched his appearance on CNN when he made the same, same point. Yeah, I uh, know. I, I agree. This is there's something grotesque about this on, on either side. I mean, just to be happy about civilians dying. So, um, yeah, Olu, uh, you're up next. Olu. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Might be a stupid question to ask. Um, do you think if Hillary got in power instead of Trump, that the Ukraine war would have got four year, would have happened four years ago? Mm. Mm. Not a bad question. Well, I mean, first of all, in the 2016 presidential campaign, Hillary Clinton actively uh, advocated for the imposition of a no-fly zone in Syria, which, you know, people who are not out of their mind would point out would necessitate direct combat with Russia and therefore maybe lead to World War III. Uh, but that was her big, that was one of her policy uh, proposals. She even reiterated it in one of the debates with Trump. Um, so, I mean, I can imagine had, you know, and I hate counterfactuals and I try not to do them, but, you know, it's not wildly implausible to me that had Hillary won in 2016, that it could have uh, uh, led to some other like, confrontation with Russia in some other fashion. You know, maybe not in Ukraine, but, you know, somewhere. Yeah, I think it, um, yeah, the trade, I think, would have gone faster uh, if Hillary was in office. I think that, uh, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the, the Trump uh, administration ended up sending, you know, javelins and all these things. It was much more hoggish to the Obama administration, um, it was providing, you know, all, all kinds of aid. And, uh, you know, Trump really did this in spite, you know, was, you know, sort of uh, uh, pushed into this in spite of himself. It seemed like he really wanted good relations with Russia. He even wanted to, like, remove sanctions and stuff. And, you know, Congress, you know, proof majorities in both houses stopped him. Uh, but he eventually gave up um, and eventually, you know, started arming Ukrainian to bring Ukraine closer to NATO. And, you know, that that led us here. Um, so Hillary probably would have just started doing the same thing, but just started doing it earlier, and then maybe Russia would have invaded uh, while we were distracted during the 2020 election instead of in uh, uh, 2022 or something. Also, don't forget how enormously and absurdly like U.S. domestic political incentives were warped in terms of potential act policy action that Trump could take vis-a-vis Russia. This was Russia, Russia yeah. gate. So if, if Trump did anything that could, could even be remotely construed as like less belligerent toward Russia, that was then evidence that he was in this collusive conspiratorial relationship with Putin. And that's why Putin installed him into office. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a good uh, point. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's like the incentives are warped. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah. And uh, actually, th- I actually think Trump's Trump's elevation of Ukraine closer and closer to full-fledged NATO status, but even be important than the provision of weaponry, which is also important. But yeah, I mean, people just don't know this or they choose to not learn it. That, you know, Trump and Pompeo and such, uh, they, they're the ones who, you know, brokered this like policy trajectory whereby not only was Ukraine given uh, this thing called enhanced partner status that Trump actually signed off on in 2020, but also they had this separate track of um, uh, Defense Department and State Department sort of commingling with Ukraine under like the auspices of like a new, new strategic uh, partnership between like bilaterally with the U.S. that um, Trump 
ushered in, uh, you know, in, in part to like show that he wasn't compromised because of the 2019 impeachment, you know, where, which was started with a, by a phone call with Zelensky, right? Supposedly, um, yes, but 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 that policy framework was uh, inaugurated by Trump, and then it was uh, finished uh, in, in 2021 by uh, you know by the Biden administration. So yeah, I mean. Um, the policy trajectory on the, under the Trump administration definitely sort of ineluctably led to this point. Under a Hillary administration, I think it probably would have been, taken a different course, but maybe led to a similar you know, endpoint. Mm. Okay. Uh, Ron? Hi. How you doing? Uh, yeah. So uh, great to talk to both of you. Um, so I need to do a little pushback on some of the facts uh, that uh, you've been saying for the last few weeks or last Let's just stick to the last week or two me, just to me, start out. Me specifically? Yeah, you. Yeah, okay. you specifically, Michael. So first off, the bridge is actually closed. Um, you've stated repeatedly that the bridge was back open in two hours. But if everyone will just take a look at my uh, avatar, you'll see a photo that was taken late yesterday of the bridge under repair. And you can see that both the train span and the road span is are not being used and are in fact are in a state of repair there was a story from abc uh came out uh earlier today in the in the morning uh showing satellite imagery uh, of uh, hundreds and hundreds of trucks backed up uh, several kilometers on both sides of the bridge um and then in fact whatever ukraine did and setting aside for a moment at least the the moral side of it. In fact, they have, the Ukrainians have actually cut that particular conduit. Uh, there are satellite photos from Maxar showing uh, trucks being transported across uh, uh, the, the, the Kerch Strait, as it's called, um, on ferries, right? And the Russians are having a little bit of a problem because they had kind of abandoned the ferries because they had the bridge. Now, uh, uh, so, can I just respond to that real quick, Ron? Can I, can I sure, respond sure. to that? And then I'll, I'll Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, so, so here's, here was the genesis of the, of the, uh, or the source for my claim in that regard. Um, uh-huh. this, is, this is Leonid Bershitsky. He's a Bloomberg journalist. Again, Russian himself, speaks Russian, um, now is an ardent Putin critic because he went, he, he had a, a very extreme reaction to what he regarded you know, as the immorality of the invasion. Here's what he said on October 8th. Uh, the rail part of the bridge is not seriously damaged. Traffic will resume soon. No damage to military logistics, just to Putin's pride, whatever is left of it by now. So notice he's making an, a Putin critical point in, in, in his observation about the military logistics. So is it, is it, are, you, are you denying um, what, the, what, what, what he presented in his... Uh, he, he presented data for, like verifiable transit data, uh, I, that within, actually, hours, within, within hours the rail transit resumed. No, no, what he did, I remember in the exact post, what he did was post a picture of the schedule, right? So let's really get deeply into the evidence of whether the bridge is open or not. Um, okay. So Russia had one night, to- the night of, they said the bridge was open. And then they had this long angle shot of a train that looked like it was kind of just going down a, 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 a rail yard, but there were lights in the background, but there weren't a lot of lights on it. Well, I, saw, I, I a, saw a photo of that, not from Russia, but it was in the New York Times. So that's where I saw yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, but that photo was, so then the second photo, so then there's a still photo that came out that showed, because uh, there is a, a trolley-like sort of just get you right across and get onto a bus kind of thing, because in bus, in Ukraine and Russia, buses are much bigger than uh, they are here because people don't have as many cars. So they showed that they showed the, uh, a, a three or four car passenger train empty full. I don't know, but it was short of the area where the damage is. But there's been multiple videos since then that show that first off the rails melted on at least the um, southern uh, uh, rail line, and the thing is when you see these photos and. If people want to see a photo, they can see the one that is my avatar because that is one of the most convincing photos, and that is of it being fixed. So the bridge is actually closed. There is not any traffic going over the bridge. Now, Mr. Bergashinsky, who I'm aware of, and I believe a couple other accounts, a guy named Leonid uh, Rogozin, who is uh, definitely yeah, yeah, I know him. Uh, suspect. Why is he suspect? It seems like he also had a very strong negative reaction to the invasion. Am I wrong? Well, you know, here's the thing. So first off, if you've studied Russian intelligence operations, you've read a, there's a great book called, uh, uh, um, that uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it was put out, this KGB archivist like wrote everything down and hid it in his floorboards and then defected to Britain after the Soviet Union co collapsed, right? I think it's called The Sword and the Shield or something like that, right? Okay. So... They, so one of the things that, that sort of Russian can I just, can, can I, hold on, can I just stop, stop you for a moment, Ron? Sure, go ahead. respect, honestly. Uh -huh. I, I, I'm not going to accept that this journalist can be impugned on the basis of some sort of speculation that he's been compromised by Russian intelligence, unless you have hard evidence. Well, I think, well, I think what you need to do is hear me out. I'm, I'm sure okay. you really do want to do that, right? Yes, go ahead. So, so... I I'm actually have said nothing about him being compromised. I, know, I don't I know. know if he's compromised I, I just, or not. Right? What I'm saying record. is that that they try to inhabit every part of the information space, right? They try to be the guys against Russia too, because then they're in charge of that. Right? I mean, it's just it it's kind of the way they do things. But having okay. said that, the reason just the specific reason that I really condemn Rogozin is that um before the election he was high and mighty about how Russia was never going to invade. He called Biden the warmonger. Which election? Biden's the like, U.S. election? No, after, before the invasion, right before the invasion. Oh, I, Sorry, thought you said, I, I, thought, I thought you said election. I may have. I may have misspoken. Okay. Right before the invasion, he poo-pooed. Like, he was like, I'm a Russia expert. You guys know nothing. And meanwhile, Putin's literally, you know, not only is he concentrating huge forces on the border of Ukraine, but he's also not really, you know, Biden's up there going, there's going to be an invasion. And, and Rogoza's reaction was, this is never going to happen, right? And so putting that okay. out there. Okay, okay. 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 So yep. Let me say one, one, okay. one more thing. One more thing. Yep. One ahead. more thing. Putting that out there reduces readiness, reduces the ability of a society to resist. Oh, this Russian guy says... That's not true. And he wasn't the only one kind of broadcasting that message. And in fact, you personally were very about, skeptical. Well, Zelensky was broadcasting I, that message stronger than anybody. Well, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think Zelensky screwed up, right? I think he thought. 
is Mike, can you hear Ron? I can't hear Ron. Uh, Ron, you, I think, yeah, uh, I think you might have dropped out, Ron. Sorry. I, I, I truly did not cut you off, um, yeah. but right now I cannot hear you. All right, well, let's go to um, Ron. Ron, if you want to come back, just, to, just, just, just so I can confirm that I did not, I'm not trying to overrule okay. Ron or something, but like, Mr. Ron, if you, if you can hear me, if you can hear me, Ron, feel free to come back on the stage because I did not eject you. Let me just, let me just, for the record, though, say, and, and you could see countless news reports to this effect. Here's Al Jazeera, October 9th. Uh, quote, traffic has resumed on a key road and rail bridge linking Russia with Crimea hours after it was partially destroyed by a truck explosion and an investigation is underway to find out who is behind the attack. So again, rail traffic resumed hours after the explosion. Okay. That's what was reported. Well, Rod is, uh, let's give Rod Norman a chance and then we can, uh, we can go back to, uh, we can go yeah, back yeah, to yeah, he's back. He, he stole my idea of going back in the queue again after his, uh, okay. Yeah. I, 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 Ron, we'll be back. We'll come back to you. Um, yeah, so he, uh, anyway, I was going to say, um, so Michael, how do you determine uh, when something is terrorism or not, or when two, or when two kinds of terrorism are analogous? Because you know, I, I saw a comparison that I really disagree with. You compare the Crimea bombing, um, Crimea bridge bombing, to uh, flying a plane to the WTC. Well, no, 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 I, I didn't. Okay, let me just let me just address that. Okay, I didn't compare the bombings as uh, I didn't to, to, to compare those events as such. I was comparing the moral logic being employed to justify the killing of civilians because what the 9-11, how the 9-11 hijackers justified their killing of civilians was that the civilians themselves were at fault for being in the headquarters of the evil, you know, the evil empire's uh, you know, financial system, which, by the way, the World Trade Center also had certain security state capacities uh, you know, like a secret service headquarters and so forth. Um, so the reason why the 9-11 hijackers did not regard it as morally impermissible to kill civilians in that attack was because the civilians themselves were, you know, bore blame just for being in, in that particular structure, right? So that, and that's almost identical used now to justify this terror bombing. Of course, the scope and magnitude is much I'm not comparing um, the scope. But, but, I'm comparing that 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 moral no. logic for how people are justifying the incineration of four civilians. They're saying, "Oh, well, you know, maybe they shouldn't have been on the bridge to begin with because you know Russia annexed Crimea in 2014." That's I, the type I, of but, thing but, you see. Didn't the Ukrainians attack it because it had some strategic value? It was being used to ferry all the stuff to Crimea to, for the war effort. I mean, well, that's I, what they the, I, I, they've I, made. They've they made they've, made, they've, they've made like two track arguments for the for the. Attack. I mean, what they most emphasize actually is the sim- what they regard as the symbolic significance of the act. And you know, a, an explosion, like a, a suicide bomb esque explosion attack, carried out at, at least partly or mainly or even you know, for the purpose of sending some sort of symbolic message. That's again like the quintessence of what the conventional understanding of a terror bombing I, used I to mean, be before you know, two thousand twenty two. My, you, you should talk to you know our, our friend Max Abrams, you know the terrorism researcher. I, I think that yeah. I, there are many different definitions of terrorism. Um, some of them are much more strict. So you basically have to attack an only civilian target. So even under that very strict definition, even like you know attacking Al Qaeda attacking the Pentagon will not be terrorism, right? Because well, here's here's another way to think of it. Okay, and and, and right. this is partly a function of my. Uh, let me hold on a second. This is partly a function of my my World War II uh, deep dive. But like you know, the, so the aerial bombardment campaigns that the U.S. 
conducted in in Germany, you know, with with Britain, and then in Japan on its own. Um, those were terror bombings by any definition, uh, you know, including yeah. even though, you know, they at times they targeted supposed military logistics. There was still intentional. Uh, destruction of civilians, right? Sure, sure. And, 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 and the purpose, one of the stated strategic purposes was symbolic. It was to, uh, to undermine the quote-unquote morale of, of, German, uh, of Germans. Um, and, you know, the, the Ukrainian argument for the justifiability of this attack is, on, is very similar in terms of the supposed morale factor, um, like undercutting the morale either of Putin himself or of Russia writ large. That this like massive achievement they had into, when uh, Putin inaugurated the bridge in 2018 and like called it one of a like a major triumph of Russian history. He was talking about like, Catherine the Great and everything uh, to, to 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 deliver a symbolic blow to that particular structure. Um, that was the, the stated purpose, or at least one of them, of the attack sure. per Ukraine government officials. And that kind of symbolic, uh, so 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 carrying out a, a, a suicide sabotage explosion. That intentionally killed civilians because it couldn't have been unintentional that civilians were killed. They intentionally brought the bomb onto a civilian roadway. Um, that's that. That's that's a, if that's not a terror bombing, then you know maybe we should just abolish the concept of terror bombings. Uh, so, so uh, I think it's, it's one of the more arguable cases. Um, so several things I would ask is one, you know, did they try to put it in a time when they would kill the most civilians and least civilians? Um, you know, um, to, how, how was it a state actor? You know, do we include? Okay, von Neumann, who cares about definitions? Well, do you have any other questions? You and I don't, but most people actually do care a lot about definitions, right? I mean, I yeah, mean, I, you know what? Actually, I tend to agree with him, Richard, on this. Well, uh, I, like, I, think, I think people do, especially like the, given the emotion, given the like potency just of the term terror. Like, you know, like the word racist is a good definition, right? Like, and no, the word is a good example, right? Like, you should be able to say X without thinking, always thinking about whether it's true or not whether it's racist, but most people don't actually. So, like, if you want to actually interact with the outside world... Can you speak closer to the phone? You actually have to worry about definitions, Richard, unfortunately. No, you don't have... I mean, you don't, you don't have to because they'll say it's terrorism and you could say it's not terrorism because it's... Uh, you don't have to... I mean, if you want to just engage with people, you can just, I mean, you could just say it's not that bad. You could have a bet. Everything is a balancing. Everything is a balancing test. There's no, you know, platonic, platonic ideals. And if you think it's, you know, a cost benefit and it makes sense, and Ukraine is in the moral right, you can make an argument that it's not terrorism. And if you believe the opposite, you can make an argument that it is. Um, so you know, we're not lawyers at the Hague. We don't have to, you know, sit here and you know solve this stuff. No, okay. but I do think I, I do think there's some utility actually in just referencing what the conventional conception of a terror bombing had been prior to 2022 and just observing that this particular attack well, meets the criteria. We haven't had many uh, in the terror era, in the era of terrorism, we haven't had many interstate wars. So it was like the U.S. was fighting, well, sure. you know, these, that's, well, so it's like, you know, there's not really. Well, I mean, World War II was an interstate war and the U.S. and Britain committed terror bombings uh, in Germany. Yeah, but we didn't call it, yeah, we didn't talk about terrorism back then like we do now. I mean, it was well, that's why, that's why I said terror bombings. I'm not. Yeah, well, you know. World War II, I mean, all that stuff was acceptable. So. And they called it a terror bombing back then. Did they call it a terror bombing? Yeah, I mean, read, read my essay where the um, AP reported it. Guys, okay, okay. I was going to say the conventional definition of terrorism is, hasn't it always been subject to political. Scam? Yes, yes, yes. The ANC, no one talks about like Mandela as a terrorist. Yes, yes, we know. Bombing, they didn't. 
you know, they actually did in the middle of rush hour when there were civilians. But yeah. like everyone says, you know, the Uyghurs terrorist, even though like with the King David Hotel, they tried to like warn them. If uh, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, we, we, we got it. We, we, we have a thing for each one. Do you have another question or just uh, anything I, else? I was mostly just asking about, and oh, oh, one, Michael, one more thing. Do you, when you make these um, comparisons about terror bombings, uh, do you do it um, because, you know, it pisses people off and gives you a large audience and you want more viewers in your stuff? <laughs> Come on. Uh, Come no, on. actually, he doesn't do it. you know what? I don't do that. I mean, people always impute that motive to me as though, I don't know, I, all, all, all I want is just like to get, quote, quote unquote, get a te- attention. No, I mean, I, I mean, the, the 9-11 comparison was to elucidate a principle, the one I just described to you. So, no, that is not my motive. Okay. Uh, so, Ron, we, uh, you, we dropped you and now you are, you are back. I, I know you didn't deliberately disconnect me and uh, I'm glad to be back. Um, so... so just my last piece on what I was saying is everybody, I hope that, Michael, you would commit to looking into something more deeply than a few uh, tweets and or things from like five days ago. And yes. actually, yeah, I do. So, I do commit to that. Yeah. So check out the ABC reporting. Uh, look up Maxar, Crimean Bridge, those kind of things. I, I think everyone should do that. Uh, also, well, I've seen the Maxar thing. Didn't, didn't, the, I mean, Matt, I mean, I, I have to admit, Ron, some of these private, like, military intelligence, like, surveillance firms, I, I, I don't just assign automatic, uh, credulity I, I to. Think, Michael, Michael, so I here's the thing. There are, I have to go. I promoted you to moderate, so I think you have control now. Um, you're okay. able to make people speaker. And yeah, stuff. yeah, it's fine. Okay, yeah, okay. great. All right. Thanks, man. Good night, everyone. All right, bye. Okay, so yeah, you were here. saying something, uh, so Richard? You, you got to leave the room, though. I have to leave the room for Sorry, you to bro. be. The... Well, you have to, to for me to take the next callers. Yeah, Are you, you're sure it's not. I, I, all I can do is. I, I, I don't have the. I don't. I don't have the option to take new callers with you as the host. I need to be the host. Um, so it, it gives me the option to end room. It does not give me the option to, um, to leave room. Oh, okay. That would be unfortunate. <laughs> okay. Why don't you just continue with Ron and then you can, you can close out. Sorry. Okay. For, okay. Whatever, okay. That sounds great. That sounds great. Um, uh, uh, technology sucks. It's a bad thing. <laughs> so, but the main thing is there, there, you know, there's just dozens, there's a ton of reporting out there and, you know, it's it's no, pretty quick. I've seen it. It's pretty. It's a. It's I, a pretty I, I saw cool. one finish. I saw a Finnish analyst who I I don't know the full credibility of, but you know, uh-huh. he didn't seem crazy. Who actually is the one who said that that the you know beyond reasonable doubt or like the the by far most plausible explanation for like how the attack was executed was that um, it was this uh, that the the driver of the truck was actually unwitting. And that, you know, the, whatever Ukrainian agents surreptitiously loaded the so, explosives onto the car. Onto all the right. So I think, uh, so, all right. So the first thing is, uh, we're not sure on, on, you know, first off, I think it's totally justified to use a truck to that thing. I think that it's war. These people are at war. One country is trying to literally eliminate the political leadership of the other, right? I mean, they made a stab at Kiev. We know that. So um, is it justified to do that? I, personally, I think so. But setting that aside, right, I think that there are other parts of this operation that aren't clear to, to us. Um, well, I agree with that, yeah. And I, first off, I think that the Ukrainians have a group of people 
who uh, are inside Russia who are uh, uh, anti-Putin. I think they're like super communist or something. But I well, that would be surprising. I mean, them. how did they? How did they do? I mean, th- th- that's potentially reflected by the assassination car bombing outside Moscow. I'll be honest. Right? I, I think it's the same group, right? Okay, um, yeah. I, I think you know how uh, Israel uses. Uh, and what about that, the Nord Stream pipeline? Any any relation there? Or uh, you know, so we so can I, I, to, to be honest, I, I I don't have any knowledge, but the only only I don't think that serves the West in any way. And yeah. one of the things that we have to realize, I think, is that some Russian actions are for political purposes at home, and people want to put their like sort of. What does the U.S. have to do with this? What does Germany have to do with this thing? So uh, I think it was Cortez who burned his ships in Mexico, if, if I have that right. And um, one of the ways that Putin or other hardliners can kind of force the force the because we have to think that Putin has politics, too. Right. We're not seeing him. But. By burning his ships, by blowing up the one gas line, uh, line to Germany, okay, it yeah. kind of kills the chance, right? All right, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. I mean, that's so. That's your speculation. I think you know. It is, right? yeah. um, it is um, speculation. It is speculation. So, what's your? Okay, what's your? What's your? It's, uh, but just back to the bridge thing. Um, let me just very quickly pose sort of a thought experiment, I'm, and I'm not trying okay. to do what about or anything, but like just like uh, let's just imagine a hypothetical. Okay, so the United sure. States is at war with whomever, Iraq, two thousand three. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the U.S. military is transporting uh, logistics for the war in Iraq, uh, I don't know, let's say over the George Washington Bridge, and then the, those, those uh, supplies are then flown to you know, Baghdad at the, to the U.S. military base, something like that, right? Um, now, so let's just stipulate that the George Washington Bridge is being used for some military logistical purpose. purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, are you telling me, that it would be widely accepted as just like commonsensical if some, you know, special agent saboteurs from like the Baathist army uh, showed up in Fort Lee, New Jersey and uh, did a terror, did, did a truck bombing on the George Washington Bridge and technically disrupted a supply line, but like, but incinerated for civilians. I don't know. I think that would be received rather harshly. Ron, are you there? Okay, Ron, you might have dropped out again. I'm not sure what's going on with the connection today. Uh, I'm sure. Okay, you're back. I'm you're sure. Back. You're okay, back. Great. You're back. Sorry. Great, great. So, um, so let's just assume that Iraq is, to, to kind of fill out your scenario, let's mm-hmm. assume that Iraq is still, like it's before Saddam gets captured and there's still a government and all that stuff and nobody's signed any peace treaties or nothing. Right. And that's totally legitimate, right? I mean, let's get real. It's 100% legitimate. It's a bridge over which military equipment is crossing. Right, now, so it's a legitimate terror Americans, bombing. <laughs> would, it would not be a terror bombing at all. It would be a bombing of a military, militarily significant artery, right? I mean, why wouldn't it be? I mean, if the I, U.S. I guess... is running tanks over it, and those tanks could go, I mean, they don't even have to possibly go to, to Iraq it's just to disrupt their military operations, right? The United I, States I, military operations. I guess, you know, my thinking is if you intentionally commit an attack in which you know for certain there will be civilian casualties, such as if you explode a truck on a civilian, uh, on a bridge that over which civilians travel every day, all day, like on, like the George Washington Bridge or like, you know, the, uh, the bridge in Crimea, then uh, that 
intentionality, meaning you, you, you knowingly killed civilians. Maybe you had other mo reasons or motives for doing it as well. But if that, if you deliberately did that, then yeah, I do think that there is a, um, there, that enters into the terror category of some sort. Now you could even, now, now people, I mean, Vinmin and others, uh, they uh, vigorously make the case that the bombing is justified. So clearly there's a basis on which you can make the claim that a bombing was justified. I mean, not to do the most extreme example, but, you know, the, the uh, Al-Qaeda hijackers were adamant that the attack on the World Trade Center was justified. So this doesn't preclude you from making the argument that the attack was nonetheless justified. But to me, it's, it's, it's pretty plainly in the same just sort of descriptive category. I hear what you're saying, but, you know, here's what I have to say is that, first off, the Crimea Bridge is like the most critical choke point of the entire Russian front, because where they are most pressured right now is in Kherson, right? In the farthest western part of the area that Russia has occupied. That area is completely 100% supplied over that bridge, right? That All that stuff's going over that bridge. And in fact, the, they're relying on rickety non-Russian uh, railways to get stuff throughout the rest of, of, of the area that they've occupied, right? And they don't probably have enough people there. They're relying yeah, on Ukrainians, okay. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Ron, Ron, I got it. We, we, we have to just wrap up because Richard has to go and he has to end the room. But let me just let me just make a final point and then I'll maybe like make you let you make a final point. OK, okay. Um, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I understand these uh, sort of extraneous military oriented rationales for why the bombing could be said to be uh, justified. You know what? I chalk that up to uh, fundamentally that war introduces like this warped logic into people's moral reasoning such that you could say, oh, yeah, of course, the incineration of four civilians on a bridge was justified for X, Y, and Z reason. You know, okay, yeah, people can make that argument. That's why I think it's prudent to remain as detached as possible from the, like, the warping logic of war mania, um, which is why, you know, I would not deem it justified for some Iraq agent to blow up the George Washington Bridge. I would not deem it justified for the bridge in Crimea to be... Uh, to, deemed justified when it blows up civilians. To me, the key thing is that civilians were intentionally blown up. Um, I know people have other considerations that they prioritize in their evaluation morally of this issue. Uh, I, but, you know, maybe we have to have, just have different moral calculuses. Okay, so my response to that is, under that, I mean, what bridge ever in the entire world is only used by the military? Maybe something in West Point where they march over or something. But in reality... Bridges are things that go over rivers and people go over them, civilians and whatever. And it, it's an iron law of, of war that you need to cut people off from crossing a river, right? So as long as we, as long as war exists and it's a real thing, then bridges are going to be hit. Other civilian installations that have a very military purpose, but especially bridges. What, okay. Yeah, what yeah. else is there other than bridges, you I know? know. Yeah, you know, war, so anyway. war, war is a real thing, and it does exist, and maybe it will always exist. Um, but that doesn't—that doesn't preclude me from declining to get subsumed into this whole kind of depraved war logic that causes people to make moral judgments that I find to be totally indefensible. I'm not saying that I'm accusing you. Of, I'm not accusing you of that personally. I'm just stating why it is that you know I uh, don't accept. Like the premise of all of this war logic in the first place, so therefore I'm not going to accept like 
premises that you could only grant if like you were embedded within the logic, if that makes sense. Well, I guess you have to ask Vladimir Putin about that then, because he's been bombing a lot of bridges. Well, I'd love to talk to him. I don't have his cell phone number, but maybe someday. Um, I'll try to get it for you. I might be able to do it. Okay, very good. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, Phil and such, uh, apologize, uh, but uh, Richard does have to go, and he has to actually physically end the room. I'll, I'm going to do another call on probably tomorrow or the next day, so you know, come on back. And uh, Richard, if you can hear me, uh, you can end the room now. Hello, Richard. How are you there? <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll try to uh, text him. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, I, I mean, Ron, technology I mean, is have, difficult. Yeah, if you have anything else you want to say while I'm waiting for him to enter room, go ahead. Uh, sure. Um, so I would like to talk about the Gina. Uh, so here's the thing: it's kind of complicated. So you know that Putin has these um, uh, 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 oligarchs that he uses to execute state tasks, like. For example, Yevgeny right. Prigozhin. Yeah, I know. Right. I know that Dugina worked for uh, some entity owned by this you know, okay. oligarch who, who um, uh, and, she, and she did like some. Uh, she worked for some website that was you know whose you know yeah. uh, corporate owner was the same owner of like the the, the Wagner group, right? Um, so yeah, exactly. I mean, so what I'm, I'm sorry, saying is I'm that, sorry, that I think not, that context that does not, is important. That does, hold on. The, okay, okay. You can you can add the context all you like. That does not I think you should status. add the context is what I'm saying. Okay, I just I just added the context. It does not to me nevertheless does not negate her status as a civilian. I mean, there's a reason why the U.S. State Department, right after the attack occurred when they were asked about it, denounced attacks on civilians because Dugina was clearly a civilian. So, I mean, if you want to say that she was a legitimate military target because she worked in this, in this convoluted sense, she was kind of state official, actually, I don't accept I'm, that. So, I actually don't accept it either. And uh, I, I, mean, I will cons- every every employee right. of Lockheed Martin should watch it, and their families should should uh, look. Up, so I back. so 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 personally, I agree that Ukraine's role in her killing, which the which the United States has suggested, they haven't said it's for sure. Not but suggested, they thought, alleged outright. Uh, pretty. It's a long story. But, I mean, that, um, that's, that's, okay, the, so that's, that's the allegation that you're going to get. Uh, okay, so so let me put it this way, though. We all know how it works at the New York Times, right? So the former... I don't know. Well, okay. So I've been on the inside of a few of those stories, right? And what happens is they ask the formers. The formers give most the information, and right. the currents only confirm, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... The Intercept you know, actually just did that with it reporting. That yeah, finding. that's exactly. I mean, exactly. Uh, secret I covert action finding. Yeah, I, exactly. Same thing. Same thing. And you see it in law enforcement, too. It's the same structure of source and, you know, whatever. So but the gist of it is, is that um, my guess and this is. Ron, I'm sorry to say you dropped out again. Uh, don't know if it's your end or mine or what, but uh, you just okay, you're back? back. You're back. You're yeah. back. Yep. So I think when my phone goes to uh, 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 whatever, it, it, it cuts me off for a minute because okay. I got ducked out. But anyway, I suspect that like uh, Israel uses that uh, crazy commie group in Iran to do those assassinations. Mek. So yeah. yeah. Mek. Yeah. So I think it's kind of the same thing, and you know. 
So it was interesting in the sourcing okay, well, let, of the. Let me ask. Let me ask you this, Ron. Okay, so let's let's say. Let's, I let's think it's wrong. Out. What they did is wrong. I want to say let, that okay, straight well, up. Okay. Well, let's. Okay. So let's stipulate that the sourcing is right, or, or like what with the intelligences alleged by within your times is correct. Um, what does that tell us about Ukraine? Because as I mentioned earlier, like Zelensky's right hand man went on state television the night of the attack to vehemently deny that Ukraine could conceivably have committed such an attack because it would have made Ukraine a terrorist state. So, okay, so what, I mean, what are we to infer from that? So I, I think that when a government makes a mistake, they try to hide it as much as they can, right? When they realize that their stupid plan was wrong, they try to bury it, right? I mean, so I listened to your thing today with uh, that guy, and he was a jerk, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, you know, the point is, is that, of course, Ukraine's going to deny it. They're at war, right? So they're going to lie about a few things, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. That's their job. That's, that's a and whopper Russia's, of a lie, though, when you're, uh, when you're effectively accusing yourself of being a terrorist state. I mean, that's a, not, not, not a run-of-the-mill you know, lie. So, first off, we don't know who approved or whatever, and I can get into the vagaries of Ukrainian intelligence right now, but it would put everyone to sleep. Uh-huh. But the gist of it is, is well, you know, I, think, you know, I, I, I actually think it's plausible, Ron. I mean, I, I don't have this guy's name off the top of my head. It's like the right hand advisor to Zelensky in the presidential. Uh, Ola, Ola something, yeah. I believe yeah, yeah. it is. I yeah. mean, to me, to me, it's plausible that he genuinely didn't know that a Ukraine state. I, I agree with that. that uh, I, I agree that that assessment is uh, uh, somewhat likely. Yeah, right. Yeah. And maybe so. He didn't, so in other words, he didn't lie. It's possible. That's true. Right. We don't know because this so, is I mean, maybe he genuinely thought this? that Ukraine couldn't have done it because that would make Ukraine a terrorist state. Well, so even if he did know, he's going to say we didn't do it. Right. Of course not. Now, to be honest, I don't. If Ukraine I mean, is it, is it, is it, it much better to wait? Six, is it much is it much better to, for, to wait six weeks and have like your chief sponsor, you know, meaning the U.S. government uh, be forced to like release it? As a public accusation in the New York Times, I mean, is that like a better? Well, I don't think they're forced to release it. So first off, one thing you got to say is why did they release it? Well, because I think the Biden administration might be a little more committed to transparency than than you. Okay, you dropped out again, Ron. Sorry. So the Biden administration was more transparent than you're acknowledging right now. In other words. Someone that they're with did something wrong, and they said that it was wrong, and then they said, "Don't do that again." That's a terrible thing to do. So you, think they exactly. revealed, so you think they revealed? Do you think they revealed it in the name of transparency, like a principal commitment? I, to you know, who knows why they revealed it? But the, the fact of the matter is, not only I can get did they my reveal theory. it. All right, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think you know with the, the 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 what seems like the pretty clear subtext of that article. Um. Is that at least certain factions within the Biden administration, maybe within you know, intelligence services, whomever, um, possibly could include Biden himself, but I don't know. But you know, some factions are getting a bit spooked as to the behavior of Ukraine. Because for one thing, they know that they could not um, possibly you know, uh, you know, uh, mitigate or cur- curtail the support being provided to Ukraine as in terms of arms provision and whatever. In fact, they're intensifying it. But nonetheless, they're spooked that they're getting quite aggressive um, and they're like ex- going outside the bounds 
of what might the U.S. might consider, you know, re, uh, reasonable uh, warfare. Um, with you know the assassination bombing being a being a you know a good example. So um, so, so so they put it out publicly as like you know a, a shot across the bow, or like a, or it's like a warning warning to uh, potentially disincentivize. Ukraine from committing any such further acts, but it doesn't seem to work because then they did the bridge attack not soon after. Well, I mean, after. I'll be honest, I, I could not disagree with you more on the bridge attack. Okay. Well, fine. And I have to say that Bosch made some really good points about the French resistance blowing up a bridge and everything. I mean, let's be honest. By the way, why isn't what about why, why isn't it? Why isn't it what about isn't to constantly bring up World War II? But if anybody even uh, well uh, dreams of so like mentioning the slightest thing about Iraq, thing, it's, not, it's not. It's not what aboutism. It's yeah. not what aboutism, right? It's not right. It's just that you're really wrong about World War II. So also, I have a master's degree in German history and. World War One and World War Two are my specialties. Okay, what am and I wrong about? You're wrong about a lot of things. First off, you're really wrong, about, and this is a U.S. piece. You really so the polls that you draw your information from. So you kind of do cherry pick, don't you? It's not right? cherry you, picking. It's not. I mean, I know this argument because mm-hmm. I, I, I did a whole. I, I did a whole response. I don't know if you read the second essay in that like installment. I have I not read that essay. Okay. I admit, well, I read some of okay. your work. But let me okay, say well, this. I, I address this. Those same polls, I understand, but those same polls, so when a poll does a poll, they do a whole bunch of questions. I know. Right? I'm aware. And, I'm aware. And you picked up the one. Okay, you dropped out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's my fault. It's my fault. You know what? I'm just going to keep my finger on, the, on okay. the phone so it won't do that. So anyway, the thing is that there were other more. Okay, uh, I, I, I know this critique because I've, I've responded to it in detail. So can I just respond? I mean, sure, go ahead. Yeah. First of all, okay. So what you're saying is I cherry picked because I selected for polling questions that asked in the most direct terms possible: Does the respondent support or not support? U.S. entrance into the war. So there were now. Yeah, that's not yes, the only. That is the criticism. That's not the only way the question is phrased, as I acknowledge in the article. Which you know, I mean, if you're curious about my view on this particular issue, you should read. Um, of course, other questions about other aspects of U.S. policy were at, uh, put to voters in different ways, uh, respondents in different ways. My argument is that this is the most clear-cut window into public opinion as to the desirability of actually entering the war, because when you like. Formulate multi-clausal questions right, about, like, you know, lend-lease or would you want, favor doing this if X happens? Um, yeah, then you can fudge with the with then you can get different results. But you know, but wait, one complicating factor is like sometimes you know some of these like compound questions that you're talking that you're saying I cherry picked and excluding. You know, they'll say you know uh, is, should lend-lease uh, is is lend-lease desirable policy if even if it like increases to some extent the risk of uh entering the war something like that exactly um, exactly okay. exactly but but, but here but here's the here's the complicating factor okay at the very time that Gallup was asking that compound poll question they were uh, uh, lend lease was being presented to the public by Roosevelt by the uh, members of administration by congress and by the media as 
the means by which the U.S. could avoid entering the war. So actually, Roosevelt sold to the public Lend-Lease uh, on anti-war grounds. I mean, it was like our key so that we do not have to enter the war. So, yeah, that, so that, that public argument was deceptive and false. Um, so let me ask you but, a but, simple, you know, lots of people probably, but, but, I would, but would you be surprised if Roosevelt, you know, the, who had just been elected to an unprecedented third term um, and was the longest served president in U.S. history at that point, if, if, his, his, if his public argument had some effect on pop, pop, public opinion? That's why I think it's very much defensible to isolate, you know, the fairly robust, actually, breadth of polling results that draw specifically from the most direct question as to does the respondent or does he not favor entering the war? I don't see what's so horrible about looking at that. Well, first off, I, 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 I just think you're totally cherry picking and I totally disagree with you. Because, well, are you cherry picking by cherry picking these other compound questions? Of course not. And I'll show you why right now. Okay. So first off, I think there's no one in this who's listening right now, all these millions, who would actually <laughs> believe that Roosevelt would rather have a war to defeat Hitler if a, a, a less invasive version could win the thing, right? So okay. maybe he thought it wasn't likely to happen and eventually it was going to happen. But, you know, the questions are, are you willing to take this chance, America, if if there is a chance that there's war, will you still support England? And they said in big majority, 65, 66, over and over again, that that's what they wanted, right? And you're, 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 and, you're, mis- you're missing the point. that's right? where we're getting to. I understand what you're saying. But well, by, but, 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 but here's what I'm saying, though, because here's what you're missing. It wasn't that Roosevelt might, in theory, have preferred some other method of neutralizing Nazi Germany. The point is that there is a huge array of evidence that Roosevelt endeavored to enter into the European war and become a combatant against Nazi Germany. I happen to disagree with you massively on okay, every part you of your point. With the, well, okay, well, I mean, so you disagree with Winston Churchill himself, who reported that as Roosevelt's no, well, explicitly first stated off, in So first off, I've read Winston Churchill's memoirs. I don't know if you have. But not the full memoirs, but I did read the the, uh, the 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 records that were released. You know, of course, decades later, because this stuff gets concealed. Yeah, I understand, right? But you, but you know, here's the thing: Why would so? First off, everybody's lying, right? Not only is 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 Churchill lying to his cabinet, but even Roosevelt is lying to Churchill, right? And right. <laughs> So you, when you look at these things, you can't just say one time this, you know, Churchill told his cabinet this one thing, okay. right? Here, here's so a, you, again, you can't I, I, do that. You just well, can't do that in history. Okay. I don't know if you read the initial essay I did on this because I did read okay. the initial essay. I okay, think. good. Well, okay, I read well, at in, least two of them. In that initial essay, okay, Roosevelt himself, as well as his administration, were, they were on an all-out PR offensive to get Lend-Lease passed. In, uh, starting in this, uh, January of 1941, right? Which Roosevelt was, which on, passed on. with big public support. It, right, yes. it did pass with big public support. My contention is that the passage was uh, in part the product of you know deliberate, extensive state deception. Um, be, here and here's why: uh, Roosevelt expressly denied 
you know, directly, press conference, uh, and so did his secretary of uh, the Navy, and so did other top administrations, even testifying before Congress, you know, like, so like, you know, could potentially be charged with perjury, right? Um, they te- expressly denied that, you know, pursuant to the enactment of Lend-Lease, that there could be any uh, naval convoys employed by the, by the U.S. Navy to transport the war material, right? They said so that was not possible. And, and it turns out, it turns out, of course, we find out years later, hold on, I'm almost done. It turns out, of course, we find years later that Roosevelt had actually already issued an order to his military chiefs to begin, uh, launch the, pro, uh, the, the, the logistical plans to begin those very convoys that he was denying in public were ever going to occur. So I don't know what you call that exactly, and, uh, if not some form of state deception. To me, it's just like an open and shut case. But your, your overall position is all wrong. Yeah, what's my overall that? position? Your overall position is that a completely duped U.S. public, like totally didn't understand. Yeah, okay, Ron, what was going I'm sorry. On. I'm sorry. I don't want to be. I don't want to be redundant. But my overall position, such as it exists, was actually laid out pretty clearly. I would hope in the in these uh, in the well, first the I main may essay. Be wrong. So, in the, so I mean, I would, you got to you got to read that essay. I mean, that I have my read ultimate the essay, but I don't. I don't have it right in front of me, okay. and I think it's kind of tough for me to. Like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll restate, to, I'll just restate to you quickly here what the ultimate conclusion is. And that would, that'd be great. That'd be okay. great. Yeah. Okay. So this whole discussion of World War II was not just random that I decided to, you know, start binging the history channel or something. Mm-hmm. I noticed, mm-hmm. as you probably noticed, that World War II analogies, Neville Chamberlain, Sudetenland, et cetera, et cetera, even Vosch did it with Nazi Germany, you know, occupied France. These analogies constantly get invoked to justify certain interventionist measures today. Is that, not, is that correct? Um, I would hope you would agree uh, that's correct. So, uh, uh, I don't let, me, think... let me just finish. Let me just finish. Let me just finish. I just want to give you the thesis, and then you can tell me where I'm wrong, okay? All right, okay. okay. So, those analogies are constantly invoked, and presumed in those analogies is that U.S. intervention in World War II ought to be viewed as like a... An, indisputable, unambiguous good and, and that can be endorsed in like absolutist terms. Because so the reason why people are bringing up the analogy, right, is because U.S. intervention in World War II is assumed to have been like the paradigmatic example of U.S. military goodness. And that's why they're trying to import it into the present context to give, to, to, uh, uh, give a, sh- a sheen of moral justifiability to whatever the U.S. is doing now. Um, so I sought to dispute the certainty with which U.S. intervention in World War II is, is uh, depicted in these morally absolutist terms by, by mentioning three key points, okay? Three, three prongs of why it is, in my judgment, that the moral absolutism ascribed to U.S. intervention in World War II is actually not tenable as like reflected in these analogies. Number one, extensive campaign of state deception to actually bring the country into war, which it was already brought into long before Pearl Harbor. I mean, and this is not me saying it. They, like people like the military affairs editor of the New York Times said uh, in I'm September of 1941 that the U.S. entered the war when, the, when uh, Roosevelt launched a secret military occupation of Iceland, thereby entering a German war zone with expeditionary convoys. That seems possible to me that the U.S. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. So Iceland was a German war zone? Hold on, hold on. Let me just finish, and then you can respond. Okay, so that's, that's argument right. number one. Argument number two is 
that, you know, it, it's still underappreciated the enormity of the deliberate destruction of civilians that was integral, not aberrational, to the U.S. aerial bomb, uh, bombardment strategy in conjunction with Britain and Germany and then on its own in Japan that, of course, culminated with the two nuclear strikes, still the only time those have been used, uh, hopefully, <laughs> right, uh, for now. And then uh, number three was this uh, this sort of side, this like Holocaust issue, which might be the most fraught. I don't really want to relitigate it here. My, my only point in bringing that up was that there's a there's a case that is repeatedly made in the reputable mainstream scholarship by some of the, including by some of the most, uh, you know, well revered, just like Holocaust historians, that you know the uh, exterminate the, the decision to sort of, as a matter of formal state policy, initiate like the extermination of European Jews uh, was taken by Hitler. Uh, upon the entry of the U.S. into the war because Hitler believed that U.S. entering the, into the war made it officially a, a world war, and Hitler had this sort of like psychotic prophecy uh, where you know, once a, the next world war happened, the uh, final solution to that must be the extermination of the Jews. So this idea that, like, the, that, 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 the, that, that U.S. military intervention had this like, unambiguously like, mitigating effect on the Holocaust I think you know it does not really hold up to much scrutiny. So, uh, so, 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 three, so those three prongs right. serve to undermine so, the certainty with which people talk about World War II. So let's start with the third prong right now. So uh, at the end of my master's in German history, I interned at the Holocaust Museum. And first off, the, there's DC. a lot of things in, in D.C., yeah. So you need to understand a few things. Like first off, most of the Jews that were killed were not killed in the in in the extermination camps. I know, I know that, I know that. I yeah, know that. and I'm they were not about, part of that order. They were not part of that yeah, order that you. you talk about. I got you. Right? I got you. I'm so, talking, okay. so there's talking a about huge bit there. Well, then I, I, you're really I read, not talking I just, about the majority of the Holocaust now. Well, are hold you? on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But, 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 Ron, what did I just specifically say? I said the extermination phase, yeah, meaning the extermination I, in camps. In other words, you focus only on that to kind of inexplicably justify not helping Ukraine, right? Uh, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> I mean, in other words, that's the context this came up in, right? Well, here's, here's, I mean, what, here's, here's what I'm trying to justify, Ron. I am tr trying to justify the contention that this kind of conventional sort of morally absolute depiction of World War II can somehow be invoked just sort of uh, casually to, to, to justify U.S. interventionist policy today. Now, people want to justify U.S. interventionist policy on other grounds. Okay, go, go ahead. Uh, but in terms of the World War II analogies that I'm inundated with, and I'm sure you see pretty for you frequently enough, uh, my contention is that the the, 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 the the presumed moral basis for those analogies really is not anywhere near as sufficiently uh, as like adequately empirically established as a lot of people just seem to unthinkingly assume that they are. So first off, one of the things you did was wade into a huge historical debate that you I didn't that. know about well, called I the historical strike. I, I did know so about in, it. That, in that's... German historiography, we have this thing called the historical strike, right? And there are two groups, a guy led by one group led by Andreas Hill Gruber, the other led by any number of people 
And they're both actually right, and there's a synthesis of them, right? Oh, I got it. But Ron, but, but Ron, hold on. I wasn't, but, but that, that's the thing. This is why, and I wrote this specifically in the essay, right? I, I'm not purporting to to claim that this sort of school of thought around, like the you know the effect of U.S. entry into World War II on you know the exterminate the initiation of the extermination camps and so forth. I'm not purporting to claim that that's like the metaphysical truth. Right. So All I was purporting to claim was that there's a question. legitimate school of thought which presents that as the chronology. Which so is. you're kind of a Fragenhaber, as they call them. But anyway, so my particular thought is, who cares, right? Why are you bringing it up then, right? You brought it into the convo, I'm not anybody else. Here's, here's why I'm bringing it up. Because if there's, a legit, there's, if there's an academically credible school of thought uh, which at least posits or, or postulates – that um, actually, U.S. intervent the the entry of the U.S. to the formal entry anyway into the war in December of forty one um, was a factor in uh, initiating the, the extermination camp phase of the Holocaust, which is the phase. Let's 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 face it of the Holocaust that when people are taught about the Holocaust in school, like when I was taught about the Holocaust in school. Uh, obviously, I didn't have a comprehensive historical understanding yet. I understand. But what, I, what I understood the Holocaust to be was like Auschwitz, the, the, the extermination. I get that. Camps, no. Right? And that has been one of the biggest problems for people to understand that, in fact, like two and a half million Jews were killed in, in Soviet Russia just by like they well, made sure. them dig their own names and they stopped. I didn't make this right? argument. I didn't make this argument. Yeah. And I'm so, but here's the thing. Hold on, hold on. Let, me, let me say something real quick. Let me just say something real quick. Okay, so there's another there's another guy who does who takes part in these call-ins. He's like you know very reasonable, Matthew. I don't know if he's here or not. Uh, uh-huh. he's, he's doing his PhD in Germany right now on uh, mm-hmm. German history as well, and he's tried mm-hmm. to you know push back on me on various things. But one thing he's, mm-hmm. he he outright acknowledges. Um, and this is I'm, I'm quoting him. I actually don't have his last name in front of me, but I understand what you're saying. Um, he's saying that until June of 1941, obviously Operation Barbosa. Um, there was not even any implementation of logistical infrastructure for mass extermination of Jews. June of 1941, so in other words, the, bro- the massive broadening of the war on the Eastern Front, that is what accelerated that phase of the initiation of actually, this kind of, Actually, uh, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. Yeah. I couldn't agree with Matthew more. In fact, okay. I agree the, with entire, too. the entire, if you ask me, the entire... Uh, uh, thing for actually, you know, the extermination camps and all that was a, a, the German defeats outside of Moscow uh, and the obvious slowing down of Operation Typhoon, their effort to take Moscow, you know, that had a far greater effect. I mean, there's, they had, nine, they, had they had 90%. So the thing is, like, here's why I agree, Ron. Here's why I agree. And here, I guess here's the ultimate point. And maybe, maybe if I were to write like a book on it, this would be my ultimate thesis. You know, I'm not going to write a book, but you know, I had done you know, a fair amount of additional sort of studying and contemplation on this. I, I think what's, what's chronically underappreciated is that like the war itself, you know, whether it was against the Soviets or eventually against the, the U.S., the war itself was a hugely critical accelerating factor in what we think of today 
as the Holocaust. Now, I think in conventional understanding of the Holocaust, it's generally portrayed as just this like natural, inevitable outgrowth of, germ- of uh, Nazi anti-Semitism. Obviously, that was the worldview in which they were operating. So obviously, that was the, uh, you know, a hugely uh, significant factor. But I think what's underappreciated is that the war itself was also an accelerant. Um, and, well, you know, so, so uh, the thing is, uh, do you know about this Vitus book? Um, remind me. So in 1928, Adolf Hitler wrote a second book, a sequel to Mein Kampf, okay. and he showed you know, it. Actually, I'm not sure I knew that. But that's a new, my, my, so I'm he showed it. So you should really look into this because it's going to change. I think okay. it'll change your view, right? So and he showed it to his party colleagues, and they're like, "You have to bury this book. Don't ever, ever publish it." And he said, yeah. "And the, basically, the gist of it is." We have to attack the Soviet Union, but our ultimate enemy is the United States, and the final German struggle will be against the United States. So he mm-hmm. was like, "That's where he like uh, talk about leaving Rom and taking over yeah, yeah. all this no, like, stuff." Oh, you know, I, I, I do know this. So, so the thing is, the thing is, he was always going to do this, right? It didn't matter what the United States well, was going to do, and that's why I mean, I'm a believer in Hill Gruber's position, right? It's well, programmatic, as uh, Hillgruber would say. It's a programmatic. Uh, uh, he can't. The guy was not. And here's the thing: where. It, but the thing is, when, when you say he was always Putin. going to do it, when you say he was always going to do it, there, there's a, that's that's not a provable statement that he was always going to do it. Because, like, in order to prove that, you'd have to run uh, an infinite like series of like uh, uh, universe timelines where he does I it in every universe. I could not disagree with that more. If a guy wrote a book that said, when I take over Germany in 1928, five years before he took over Germany, he said, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then he executed all that thing, I asked the listeners to, to, to judge for themselves. Do you, you think know? every time a crazy person writes a book, or, not, or every time a person writes a, you know, a, a, lab, a book where they you know, prophecy elaborate scenarios that could happen in the future, that means it's inevitable that the scenario must happen? I mean, no, of course not. No. People, people say stuff's going to happen. Every power in a country take it over and do everything they said in the book that they were going to do, including attacking Russia for Laban's wrong, including attacking France, including the, that the U.S. would be the ultimate enemy? Well, okay, that's, so, that's the time. When they, so what, when, you know, it's not when any idiot writes anything down. It's when somebody says, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then they take control of the country and do exactly what they said. At that got point, you've got to say, all right. So, so why, is, why is it then that the construction of the mass extermination architecture did not begin until June of 41? Like, why didn't, why, why didn't they begin well, first it off, that's false, 10 years before? Right? That's well, not I thought actually you said you agreed with that. I thought you said you agreed no. with Matthew. Well, let me explain. Right? So let me explain. First off, so you're aware of what the T4 program is? T4 Action? Yeah, yeah. The program where they exterminated mentally uh, uh, disabled people, yeah. people they didn't okay. think I should have right. said mass extermination aimed at Jews in particular as a class. Well, so, so you know, when you talk about the architecture, it's all just about... It's all about, you know, the, 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 the operational side of it. It doesn't matter who you're picking out as long as you have it figured out that I have. So they drove the same gas vans that they used to exterminate uh, uh, mentally disabled people into Lithuania and, 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 and uh, Latvia. And they put Jews in them and they 
and they ran carbon dioxide in there and killed them. And they had done experiments on mentally disabled people and other people they didn't like in concentration camps with the Zyklon B. Yeah, yeah, the, no, the I got it. Gas. I know, I know, I know. I'm yeah. talking about so remember, was, in particular. That whole, thing, that whole thing already existed, right? And they just chose another victim. But it hadn't right? yet been and, targeted, aimed at specifically at, you know, the quote well, Jewish question. you know, to be honest, there were mass killings of Jews in Poland in 1939. Okay. Everywhere... Everywhere I, okay, where I the Germans it. went. Let me just make a final point. On, let me Jews. just make a, a final point on this, Ron. Uh-huh. I, I appreciate your uh, you calling it no, no. like a reasonable person. But I just want to make, uh, in terms of the Holocaust point, um, I, I'm just here, here's another sort of impetus for why I even brought it up. And of course, it's an extremely fraught thing to, to bring up. I'm not. I've resolved not to talk about the Holocaust like iteratively on Twitter anymore because that never works out. Uh-huh. Well. Um, uh, it's but, very but, difficult. But I yeah. But I just read I just read a book um, uh, that. It's interesting, you know, I, I, I've been mentioning a lot of the most illuminating, to me anyway, scholarship on the Holocaust, as well as like World War II writ large, has come out remarkably recently, like just last 10 years. Um, and so I, I read this book uh, called, let me just get the name of it real quick. I have it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to type it in on my browser. Okay, hold on a second. Okay, it's uh, The Liberation of the Camps, The End of the Holocaust and Its Aftermath, Dan Stone, Yale University Press, 2015. So I'm just going to give you a, a, a quick uh, pa- paragraph here. And you tell me if you think this is like common knowledge in terms of how people understand the effect of the U.S. Uh, military intervention on the Holocaust, Okay. This is Dan Stone. Uh, The death marches also explain why the camps liberated by the Western Allies were not the main centers of the Holocaust. In fact, these camps had little at all to do with the systematic program to murder the Jews. Most of the Jews killed in what we now call the Holocaust were murdered in face-to-face killings at the edge of death pits in eastern Poland and the western Soviet Union, the Baltic states, Belarus, Ukraine, and western Russia, in the ghettos of occupied Poland, and in the death camps. Of those death camps, the key ones... Chelmno and the Operation Reinhardt camps of Belzec, Soberborn, Treblinka, sorry if I screwed up the pronunciation, had been, no, dismantled long, had been dismantled long before the end of the war. And the other major sites, Majdanek uh, and Auschwitz, were liberated, by, yeah, yeah, were, were, were liberated by the Red Army who found them almost empty of people. The Western Allies had little to say about the Holocaust in the immediate post-war period. Oh, sorry, if the Western Allies had little to say about the quote-unquote Holocaust, quote in the text, in the immediate post-war period, that is not that is not only because that term did not yet exist, but because the camps they liberated were not Holocaust camps, and because Jews constituted fewer than one-third of survivors, who also included a very large number of non-Jewish Poles and Soviet POWs. Uh, millions of forced laborers were also liberated, and for the Allies, it was not always easy in the pandemonium of the end of, of the end of the war to understand the difference between different categories of de- deportees. Okay, so I mean, do you think that 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 paragraph? Do you think that the information in that paragraph is like reflected in the common understanding of the effect of U.S. military intervention on the Holocaust? Uh, overall, no. I mean, I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, let's be real, right? So when those camps were liberated, it was March 1940. You dropped out. You dropped out. Sorry, Ron. When those camps, yep. am I you're back? back? Am I back? Yep. You're back. So yep. when those camps were liberated, it's like February, March, April, 
whatever, right? So it's the end of January. I think January was the first one at 45. Yeah. So it's when they start crossing the Rhine and reaching Germany proper. So Germany in Western Europe, they didn't have, uh, they did have some camps, but they didn't have the kind of collection camps, right? No extermination camps, yeah. 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 So, um, So one of the things, one of the main things I did, in fact, the main thing I did was I, when I was at the Holocaust Museum, was my job was to catalog survivor and liberator interviews, right? Mm-hmm. And so there were there were Jews that were in these camps, but they were less than the the, the um, extermination camps. And in fact, I think German Jewry suffered less in many ways than um, uh, 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 Hungarian, Russian, Ukrainian, especially Jewry. Uh, Polish Jewry, they—they right. uh, because they, there were just far more Jewish people there, right? And they were killed there. But that doesn't change the overall thing that this regime had to end, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was a moral stain on the world that was killing many many people and had values that greatly differed from all of the other states around it and values that know that that needed to be ended right i mean okay, but, words, we're on. but even if, even if even if that's your view um as to why it was necessary to wage the war i'm, I'm not contesting it right now but but even, well, if, even no, if that's your view even if your view even that's, if that's not my true, view about the war but go ahead okay but even if okay but even if that's even if that's like your your principal argument for why the war was justified, and let's say even that is not my principal argument for okay. the war was justified. Okay, I, 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 okay. All I'm trying to say is that line of argumentation you just articulated does nothing to demonstrate what I think a lot of people believe, based on almost like folk wisdom or just uh, you know incomplete. Uh, sort of, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but like myth that they've just sort of uh, passively absorbed uh, that. The U.S. military intervention itself had some kind of like overwhelmingly mitigating effect on the actual conduct of what most people understand to have been the Holocaust. Uh, I don't so, think there's a whole lot of good evidence for that. So here's the thing. I don't really think that Americans truly believe that U.S. military intervention in, I mean, if you call being declared war on by another country as military a military intervention, and it's a huge stretch, right? You play, you 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 play fast and loose with the words, right? You do. I'm sorry. What what am I the, by using the word intervention? Ron, you dropped out. I, I mean, I I don't know how I'm playing fast and loose by using the word intervention. Well, so uh, it's not an inter- when another country declares war on you. Okay, well, let's let's not get bogged down to the term intervention. Okay, let, I'll I'll just grant that. Okay, I'll use it. I uh, just I uh, got it. Got it. Okay, but so, so you're the saying, gist of it is yeah. the gist of it is it none of this is relative to the Ukrainian conflict, right? Hold on, hold on, but let me just say, I mean, Ron, I can assure you with hundred percent certainty because I know for sure based on what people tell me directly, you know, huge numbers of them because you know people are not bashful about sharing their thoughts with me on the internet. Uh, a lot of people believe it as just an article of faith that the U.S. war effort, let's say. Um, you know, uh, is more saved the say say you know uh, like ended saved the ho- ended the Holocaust or something like that. You know, had this 
ultimate resolution effect on the Holocaust. That's what people think. Well, but why is that? So a large number of American people have a wrong opinion about this. And why 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 is that that relevant relevant to the arguments of today? Well, here's why it's it's relevant, because these constant analogies that are invoked, uh, one reason why they have such potency is that because a presumption embedded in the analogy is that how could anyone ever de- dream to, to ever dream to doubt the absolute moral goodness of the U.S. war effort in World War II? Because after all, so, it stopped the Holocaust. I have to say, you have an uphill case arguing that Putin's invasion is a good thing. I'm not making that case, Ron. Of course, I'm not making that case. I've never even here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Because what you're arguing that, about, never. but what you're arguing against is helping a no. victim. You're arguing about helping a victim of a similar uh, uh, style of of of, inter, of global everything, right? Okay. I mean, in other the, words, no, I'm sorry, sorry. I, 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 I got to yeah. stop you there because you said something that's just totally wrong. So I have to address it. I'll All right, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I I I'm I have to just be absolutely adamant in insisting. And, and also affirming that there's zero evidence ever that you could find. Go ahead and look to this, that I've ever made the case that it was good for Putin to have launched the war or there, there's some moral uh, okay. value, virtue, that, that okay. value that could be ascribed okay. to the war. In fact, the very okay. first thing I said, I, I, I try to, most of the time I try to avoid like moralistic language because I don't think it's very helpful and I think it can be like clouding of judgment. But I made an exception, okay, a rare exception on the night the invasion was launched. Uh, to actually, you know, denounce the invasion in moral terms, because I actually do believe that aggressive wars, whichever country might launch them, are not morally uh, defensible. So I actually did the first comment I made on the war once it was on the invasion, once it was launched, was actually a rare moral condemnation from me. So I mean, okay, how? Okay. If that, that's how I mean that I, I think it's good. Right? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me say, I'm almost done. But I also have to, I have to further insist that applying critical scrutiny. As to the effects of U.S. policy uh, in terms of whether the policy has contributed to an escalatory spiral where Joe Biden is now announcing that we're on the cusp of nuclear Armageddon, et cetera, uh, you know, just limitless provision of, you know, now we're up to about $70 billion of, of aid. It's more than was even pro- uh, uh, given to in aid to Vietnam um, in the 60s. We, we've, dwarf, we've dwarfed that. Um, you know, I, I, uh, applying critical, rigorous scrutiny to these events, uh, pr- especially in relation to U.S. policy, which is my focus, uh, that that somehow could ever be could be rationally said to imply like active affirmative support for Putin or the war is just nonsensical, and it also is not meant to imply like some sort of opposition to Ukraine. What I'm fundamentally doing so let me is, is, is scrutinizing a U.S. military intervention. And I, I would hope you would agree that the legacy of U.S. military interventions is that there's a lot of unintended consequences. And oh, by the way, much of the time, government well, officials justifying the military intervention are not the most forthright. First off, first off, all wars have unintended events, you know, whatever. So just the straight up war piece. But let me ask you, are you agnostic on who wins Ukraine or Russia? What, what do you mean? Like who I think will win? In other words, do you want, are, do you care whether one side wins or not? 
I'm agnostic about things I have no ability to predict or foresee. See, I, 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 I don't know sure, what the outcome uh, is. Uh, let me set that aside. Let me let me put it another way. What I do know, I, the current outcome. Hold on, the current outcome. I know you want to listen to me. Okay, go ahead. I know you want to listen to me, right? When your beating heart says, "Who do I? Who am I really behind?" What does it say? I don't care. I'm behind Russia. I'm behind Ukraine. When you're beating heart, when you're really feeling it, you know, at some time, when you see a video of some kind that something happens, somebody blows up, something happens, what does your heart say? And I understand you have this intellectual disattachment to everything. What's your heart say when that happens? Okay. I understand the question. I'm not dodging it. I want to just begin to answer it, and I'll answer it directly, but I want to answer it in part by, you know, an uh, analogy. Now, one of the things, uh, a, a, a sort of interpretive lens that over the years I've, I've cultivated regarding like American politics, especially U.S. elections, is that unless there's like just an overwhelming argument for why candidate A is preferable to candidate B, that particularly in the real domain of foreign policy, which is what I have always tended to prioritize, tend to prioritize uh, it, in that case, uh, Except for that case, I am going to generally just detach from having any kind of partisan or uh, emotional attachment to the outcome of the election. Because if, if anything, that enhances my ability to hopefully analyze and report on things more uh, you know, dispassionately. Um, so is that – hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me say – hold on. Let me say, hold on. So I, I'm not going to say that that's the way to look at the world that everybody else needs to adopt, Right. Um, but that's the outlook of the world that I just do tend to adopt. And I, yeah, I do apply something similar to the war. So, I mean, I, to be honest with you, Ron, I don't recall ever having this like beating heart, like moral epiphany moment where I'm just, you know, uh, uh, brew, uh brewing over who I like, quote unquote want to win. I, I, I have like, I've tried to cut out like that weird temptation to like want to want to root for aside. Not that I, I don't have anything against Ukraine. I don't have anything against Russia. Um, I'm just trying to – I think my role is to like to best depict to – re, to depict what's actually – to depict real, rea, uh, reality to the best of my ability. So that's what I, I know, prioritize you're, you're above so these like moral judgments, which everybody else can do if they want. That's really not No, I'm not even talking about a moral judgment, right? I'm not talking about a moral judgment. I'm just saying you have a feeling of sentiment, right? I mean – and I'm going to be really brutally honest. My feeling of sentiment is with Ukraine for many reasons. Number one, because Russia has pounded on them for, you know, 300 years, right? They, the Ukazis removed the Ukrainian language from all, all whatever, right? And I'm an American and despite us having overwinning power, we root for the underdog. I don't know how that works, but that's exactly what happens. And maybe there's okay. a, a, well, here, thing let, me tell you my, let me tell you what my beating heart sentiment actually is. And you don't have to believe okay. me. I don't know why I would lie. I mean, I feel like I'm, you no, know, no, I believe I, you. Do you, do you, do you, are you able to do call-ins with New York Times journalists where they're, t they, they tell you their, their innermost like thought processes? I don't see that happening much. Uh, um, actually, but, I, have maybe had... you do. Maybe I, sh I spoke too soon. So, um, so oh, I'm going to be say, real well, honest. Yeah. Major Ukraine stories have been based on things that I gave the New York Times, and I've okay. had conversations with major Good. New York Times editors about this. That's why I actually okay. know a lot about Ukraine and about Russia and all these things, because I really worked really hard, and I gave it to the New York Times, and they published an article about it. And then I gave it to the Wall Street Journal. They published two articles, but they, you know, the Wall okay. Street Journal, listen to me. I mean, uh, the, the Times, listen to me. The Wall Street Journal fucking 
fucked me in the ass. I'm sorry. It's a cool. long story. Well, maybe, maybe we should talk uh, offline about some, that sometime, Ron, because I'm actually curious. So if you want to email me or message me or something, I'd be, I'd be sure, uh, sure. interested to do that. Sure, sure. Um, I guess just I in terms of like the... you'd like Hold me, on. though. You know, hey. I'm kind of tough on you. I'm, well, I'm the toughest okay. guy that is hey. out there. You, I just, I just subjected myself to uh, seven. Uh, what was it? A hundred minutes of uh, vouch. Uh, well, you know, so I can take it. My, my thing is, I'm, 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 I'm sort of naturally exposed. A YouTube to streamer, right? Don't do it because they're gonna do that just to no, get people I mean, into it. Hey, you know, I, I, I freely admit, I have a, I have an odd brain. I'm, I've always been naturally inclined to, you know, debate. Uh, I don't take it personally, or at least I try not to. So no, I mean, I don't, you're you you being hard on me. As long as it's like mainly substantive, um, which it has been at least so far. Uh, That's I, what I, I've I, tried I, really I'm hard to do. You. you know, yeah, and I appreciate talking that. about the bridge, saying it's actually out. I got saying it. Okay, it's let, a really let, strategic let me, hold thing. Hold on, hold on. Let me just respond to the sentiment thing. Right here, here mm-hmm. actually is what my if I have a beating heart sentiment. Here's what it is. Um, it's regret that something like this could have happened at all. And mm-hmm. in turn, a, a determination to most accurately and like empirically and rigorously uh, uh, develop a, a proper understanding of why it occurred and why it's occurring and then uh, convey that to the public to enhance public understanding. That's what my beating heart sentiment drives me to do. Now, if that means I'm morally debased, you know, okay, so be it. But I, I'm, I'm honestly reflecting to you what my beating heart sentiment is if I had to, I you know, isolate it, one. But I'm going to say a couple things about Ukraine. You and Glenn never did your research about, you I'm know, saying. you can't, uh, well, first off, you kind of never really looked into what was really going on there. And in fact, that there was a big piece. Uh, so... Like when? During the war? Before the war? Like So after the war? So, well, so first off, the war has been going on the entire time, right? There's no before okay. I meant the, the inva- post-invasion in February 22. Okay. So it was before the invasion of February 2022. But basically, you guys have missed that Petro Poroshenko made a series of moves towards Trump to try to get Trump to do things he wanted. And he tried to blackmail Trump with cases against Paul Manafort, right? It's out there, right? right? And that's why, so there was a straight-up exchange. Yeah, they they leaked the Manafort's black book. Well, but the the thing about the black book is it's real, right? It totally existed, and and that really happened. It was mostly when Manafort was working for John McCain. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And... One of my questions has always been, why are the Republicans so against this? Why not just let this go away? There's something I haven't figured out yet, and I've done a lot of work on this, and I've held some major papers on it. There's something I can't figure out about why Trump was so anxious to put that fire out, right? It never made sense to me, right? They should have ignored it. Instead, five years later, you still, pe- still see people saying Black Ledger are not real. Why would you do that, right? Unless there was something there. But saying that on the side... You know, when you talk about the provision of Javelin missiles to Ukraine, uh, you know, there's enormous amounts of evidence. And in fact, I, I have sources or I don't have sources. Another journalist that I've talked to has sources uh, that basically the, the the Javelin missiles, which were like 250 Javelin missiles, which is like one day 
off right. the actual use of javelin missiles. They couldn't be used. They could never be on the front. They had to be in a. There were political things. Well, wait, so like did, was, so like the weaponry that Trump sent was just perfunctory or, or symbolic. It, 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 it was not only perfunctory, but he 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 limited that they could never actually use against the Russians. And there's huge reporting out there from the New York Times and from the a genius Murray Wass. And I know who his sources are, and they are impeccable on this one. And I'm not going to say how I know or anything like that. But okay. in fact, well, if, if, the if exchange of the missiles know, was for so the exchange of the missiles was for a dropping of the Manafort cases away from a favored, pro, a difficult prosecutor to an easy prosecutor. Okay. Right. Well, but whatever this, the motive for the for the provision of lethal weaponry under Trump and however effective the weapons might have been, it was still leaps and bounds beyond what Obama did, right? I agree. In fact, um, I listened to your uh, argument with Vosh, and I have to say Obama did appease uh, uh, Putin. Yeah, he, he, right? couldn't bring him, he couldn't bring himself to say that because I, I guess maybe it would, be, it would seem awkward to equate Obama. I don't know, with I don't know what it is, but the thing is that Obama deferred to Merkel uh, in the Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 situations. And by the way, Russia broke them both, right? I mean, first off, Russia's the invading country, right? So you can't exactly go, oh, Ukraine broke Minsk too because they didn't agree to, you know, be totally occupied. And we can get into the complexity of all this, but the gist of it is, is that Obama did surrender. He let Merkel tell him what to do, and he never provided lethal weaponry to Ukraine right. and Biden despite totally Hillary advocating it. for it. <laughs> yeah, and Biden advocated for it too. And but he had handed Okay, but so I mean, Obama I mean, uh, did Ron, let me ask you because I tried to ask Vouch this, but he, he you know did his whole roundabout, you know, praise mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, since, since he accused uh, I mean he didn't accuse Obama directly of appeasing Putin on Crimea, but he brought up Crimea as an example of appeasement failing. So who would have been doing the appeasing, you know, if not Obama, right? Um, well it's was Hold on, hold on, hold on. What I tried to ask him was, okay, so if Obama in 2014 had option A, appeasement, option B, something else, like what was the non-appeasement choice you were saying he ought to have taken? Well, this is the difficult question, right? Because the question is, so if you really look at what happened in Ukraine in 2014, Putin had a bunch of people that were willing to work with him. In other words, his security services had penetrated well, in fact, the, the president of Ukraine was a crony of Putin in many ways, right? And in fact, the Maidan evidence has shown, like literally cell phone evidence and everything, shown that Russian security forces were involved in directing the shooting of the protesters on the Maidan, right? This was proven in court. They have the intercepts. It's real, right? And, of course, all the people that did it fled to Russia. So you have to understand that Yankovic was a pro-Russian president who then did, okay, in other but, words, but, but, the, the what Russians could had the boots on the ground. So, what? What could what ought Obama to have done by your lights he, that, he would have, have, that would have meant that he was not an appeaser? Uh, he would have to send lethal weaponry to Ukraine as quickly as possible. Um, the problem was, would that change the outcome? I don't know. On the other hand, it would present the diplomatic message that you can't go any farther. Well, because and, cause my, cause my thing is, like, appeasement is, like, a very fluid concept. It's, like, anything short of, like, I the think it's maximum. Super easy. Well, no, because it's, like, uh, so let's say Obama just did a, 
a couple of uh, weapons shipments or something, um, but it didn't actually alter Putin's behavior at all. People could then say, you know, five years later, oh, Obama appeased Putin even though he sent the weapons because he didn't go far enough. Right. So like, at what point does something cease to be appeasement? Right. I mean, now they're, they're saying anything of like uh, p- people are saying anything short of like nuclear confrontation is appeasement. I, I think there nobody is saying that at all. In fact, uh, I don't that's think you can... that's very much the clear. I mean, not not in Twitter those doesn't terms. count. Not, not directly those terms because like it's an insane thing to say. But that's that's like the inevitable. No, uh, that's a slippery slope argument, man. That's okay. slope. No, Ron, Ron, I actually I do have to go now. I've been going for a while. Yeah, long time. I understand. I appreciate this. Uh, like I said, email me or message me, and we'll uh, maybe talk offline. Anybody else who's in here, uh, I'm just going to leave the room because I'm not sure where Richard is. Uh, he seems to be muted. Uh, hopefully, the room will just end eventually. Uh, but uh, you know, I'll reconvene uh, in pretty short order. All right, take care. Bye bye.